Welcome to the Region Free Gamers Podcast. On today's episode... What was that noise? Hello everyone, welcome to the Region Free Gamers Podcast, the podcast that's fluent in gaming. My name is Paul and I'll be your host for today's show, which is going to be awesome, A, because we have a new guest, and B, because Metal Gear. Before we get to that though, my brilliant co-hosts, and I won't use cardinal directions anymore to describe (laughs) where they are, because Ozzy called me out last time for how inaccurate that is since I'm north of everybody ever. It's just unnecessary, Uh, Paul. We're somewhere in the world, and since we're region-free, who really cares? <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more, and I mean, if if whoever's listening doesn't know where New York is, I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we have bigger fish to fry, I'm thinking. Um, so anyhow, out of Virginia, Arnaldo? Wait a second. Did that really just happen? Did that just happen? (laughs) (laughs) I had that that one queued up. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, You were waiting all night to do this. That's That's why you slept only four hours, honey. I was about to say, I spent three (laughs) hours trying to come up with that. And then three hours because you were so excited that you just couldn't sleep. I'm going to allow that, but I was wondering what the hell was happening. I just want to clarify that originally I had a much longer (laughs) clip. Uh, of a different quote, but then I thought the five-second one was the optimal one. I was wondering whether we were going to have to start this whole over again. <laughs> I know, me too. Thing. I'm like, is he having audio difficulties or something? <laughs> Anyhow, out of Brooklyn, Ozzy. Hey, yo. And joining us for the first time, out of Wales in the UK, Paul. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, can't complain. Our first ever Welshman. I know, right? This is a a very nice moment for us in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I am way too excited about this. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Um, Paul's another one of our Instagram buddies uh, with one of my favorite handles. He's PlaySatan13 on Instagram. How did the name uh, come about, Paul? I know, great question. I know, I'm very curious. Uh, I could give you a really elaborate story, but the truth is I stole it from a (laughs) t-shirt. You know what? Some of the best expressions come from t-shirts, so why not? It's true. Uh, it was a skating brand in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, gotcha. And they printed oh. it on one of their t-shirts, and I just added the 13. Nice, nice. Were you, you a, were you a skater back in the day? I tried. I couldn't actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the culture, but I can't participate. Yeah, yeah. It's the attempt that matters. So I'm, I'm assuming you're a big Tony Hawk pro skater fan? Of course. Hey, there we go. Yeah, we have a fellow kindred soul here with Arnie. He's also a big Tony Hawk fan. Yes. That's come up frequently in our episodes. I know. Yeah. Nice. It'll become the next Yakuza where we just mention it every <laughs> single episode. No, we, we, we're gonna, we're not going to be able to talk about it as much as Yakuza because of licensing issues. So That's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rodney Mullen's going to have to get some checks from us. <laughs> we're going to get some <laughs> digital rights uh, complaints. So. <laughs> All right. Well, now that everyone's introduced, um, and you know what? Whoever's responsible for booking this should be fired because I don't know how we got two Pauls on the show. Yeah. I like I can I can barely hang on just managing one. We'll make two, Paul. We'll make. Two. I think we'll be. Yeah, I think we'll, I think we'll just manage. 
I think people um, will just assume that it's you doing an accent the whole time. <laughs> well, we've been over this. This whole podcast is in the yes. mind of Artie. <laughs> well, uh, before we get started on the topic for the day, um, as always, if you enjoy the show, tell a friend. And uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcasts app. And don't forget to unleash that five-point palm exploding heart technique on the subscribe <laughs> button. Oh, man. You've had to perfect it for years and years. <laughs> oh, I've been, I've been practicing, man. My revenge is coming soon. Don't worry about it. Um, oh, so, Lord. yeah. Paul from Wales. Um, are you a Welshman born and raised? I feel like our listeners need to know a little bit more about you, other than the t-shirt story. And maybe a little bit more about Wales. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know what to say about Wales. We are the forgotten part of the UK generally, because everybody always Not remembers today, England. buddy. <laughs> Not, today. <laughs> Not today. Not today. But yeah, uh, born and bred, literally in the same 30-mile area, South Wales Valleys. Not really a lot to say about the place, because not really a lot happens here. <laughs> what are your thoughts now, on Brexit? <laughs> no, I'm, oh just God, no, I'm just no, kidding. No, I'm just no, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We shouldn't talk about that. We're going to lose a lot um, of listeners if I start ranting about that. I'm oh, just geez. messing with you, Paul. Just messing with you. <laughs> so that, that area, does that include Cardiff? It does, yes. I'm about 20, 30 miles north of Cardiff. Okay. And so I'm assuming smaller town then, yeah? Yes, very small town. <laughs> so what was okay. gaming like like when you were growing up? Did was it hard to like find some of the stuff that was coming out as it was coming out or did you generally have like good sources of of video games? Arnie, well, you're talking about this as if he was like riding in horse buggies and stuff I like mean, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, no, the 80s enough. and 90s were a very like turbulent time in in gaming, especially when it came to like getting like new releases. Like even for me, like living on a small island, I didn't we were I just remember that our game stops were always like a, ge- a generation behind um, <laughs> the ones in the states. Like when when essentially when GameStop had like purged their PS2, Xbox and like GameCube stuff in favor of like PS3, Xbox 360 and Wii stuff, we still had that stuff like lining the shelves. Like it was still like 70% of what was on GameStop shelves. And in a funny way, that sounds extremely appealing. I know. I, I, now, I so. now it does. But in the, at the time <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Like, why can't we get like any of this new shit? Paul. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't too bad. We had a department store called Woolworths. I don't know if you guys had that. And we used to have, like, all the major releases through that, as well as films and everything. Um, we, major cities had uh, EB Electronics. Okay. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I did have a, a little local shop that I used to get my two six hundred games from. Oh, nice. So nice. It's not too bad around you. <laughs> So let me ask you, Paul. Um, so just so that we can get a baseline, how what age range are you in? You, you don't have to disclose your real age. <laughs> I, I've got no problem with that. I'm, I'm 33 years old. Okay, yeah. So around around my age, I'm 29. Arnie is 27, right, Arnie? Uh, yes. Yeah. So around our age. So I guess, Paul, you didn't kind of grow up with like the Spectrum Commodore. Uh, kind of scene, right? Which was more of an 80s scene over there in the UK, right? Yeah, I was a bit more alien to the old uh, computer side of things. But um, yeah, I was a bit late with gaming myself. I started with a 2600 in about 1989. So after the after the NES had been released for a few years. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting because the 2600 was quite old by that time, right? Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the games that you played on it? Uh, Well, I actually remember the first game I played on it was Qbert, and I still can't play that game now. (laughs) (laughs) You still traumatized. (laughs) It's hard work, man. I I love the game because it was like the first thing I ever played, but it is such a ball ache. Yeah. Well, minor, minor digression. Uh, just, just Arnie, if you can allow me for a second. Yeah, one yeah. of the, one of the, the cameos that I enjoyed the most in Wreck It Ralph was that Qbert was homeless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I strangely liked that movie a lot because it was just so, uh, catered. It catered so much to the gaming, gaming culture. And Qbert was just homeless because no one cares about Qbert anymore. Um, <laughs> So, I care about anyway, Cuba. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, Paul. I'm pretty sure it has a really soft place in your heart. He does. He does. Or she. Hubert was was always one of those games that like made me feel really stupid. Like I couldn't think in the fourth dimension of like how to move Cubert. Like no matter yes. how many times I played that game, I was always like, "How do I like?" When I want to, when I hit down, and then I went a completely different direction, I was like, "How the fuck did that happen?" Like I thought I'd figured this out. Mm-hmm. But Hubert was always like, I felt like I needed like a third eye to figure out that game. I think they used the control system from Kubert for the early Tomb Raider games because they never yeah. jump where you want them to jump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> God, you're giving me flashbacks, Paul, to Tomb Raider. Uh, that was annoying. Um, so, what made you kind of come onto the the gaming scene, Paul? Uh, well, I've never really left it. I mean, I started off with my 2600 and I progressed slowly behind everyone else through all the other consoles. But it's just something I really enjoy. It's something that I don't need to involve other people in because I play a lot of single player games. And it's just something, you know, like I said, it's fun. <laughs> nice. What does nice. your wife think? Uh, she tolerates it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like mine. <laughs> I think most of our... <laughs> partners tolerate our hobby. Uh, she's got a, an addiction to Tetris, so I just let her go. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. We're big fans of Tetris here, so we're not going to dispute that. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, my wife, like, like actively dislikes video games. She, she encourages my hobby because it gives her more free time to herself, but for video games themselves, she has no time for them. Except I made her put that VR helmet on and try Tetris Effect. And she was all over that shit. <laughs> you know, let me just say, you know, I, I had a girlfriend once that looked down upon video games as well. Naturally, we're not together anymore. Um, but her hobby was knitting. And it's like, you know, yes, it's practical, but your hobby is knitting. Like, why, why are you giving me shit for this? <laughs> so you have no standing here to judge. I mean, granted, in an apocalypse, you'll be in a much better position than I would, but it's true. It's true. She'll be warmer, and she'll have a layer protecting her from the nuclear fallout. So, you yeah. know, props to her. Um, my wife knits, but she knits so that she doesn't feel guilty about watching TV. Yeah, that's that's actually the main reason. Yeah, that's about right. So, what are some of your favorite games, Paul? Um, just to like get a baseline again as to what your tastes are. You know, kind of the circumstances of you growing up with games. Ah, well, like I said, I started off 2600, all the arcade style stuff, moved on through the NES, uh, SNES, I should say, and platformers galore. And then about when the PlayStation came out, it was a lot of narrative-driven, story-based games. I do like racing stuff as well, so 
It's a bit all over the place. I'll play first person, third person, RPGs, literally anything apart from what seems to be popular at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm assuming with narrative driven games, Metal Gear would be there, yeah? Yeah, I did want to say, but, you know, <laughs> I totally broke around to that. <laughs> now, is this your favorite game of all time, or is, or, or is there some other favorite game of all time that kind of takes your spot? Um, I have a group of favorite games that I, I like to revisit quite a lot, and Metal Gear mm. is definitely in there as one of the most played. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, let me ask you one, one quick thing, Paul. I know that in your, in your Instagram, which I love because you're very irreverent. I, I think mm-hmm. both you and, and Bob gets bored. Um, or your friend Bob, I guess is what he's called now. I mean, you guys really don't have any qualms about shedding on a video game. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, that's always very refreshing to see. But I know that last year you went through this whole uh, quest to complete at least 50 games or so. And you completed, I think, 52 or, or actually, no, 52 games. So how did that come about and what was that experience like? Um, yeah, well, the idea behind that was that at the t- the previous year, I was playing online games too much, and I'd spent several months playing GTA Online, mm. and all these <laughs> games were building up in my backlog while I was doing it, and it was a case of, I want to get some of these games done and stop playing the online stuff. So I, I saw someone was doing a 52-week challenge. I presumed that was 52 weeks, uh, 52 games in 52 weeks. And by the end of it, I finished sixty. I think that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. Insane. You can you can actually use the hashtag play Satan beat this right, yeah. and uh, and see his reviews. Uh, which you know I've perused every once in a while just to see what your thoughts on a particular video game might be. Um, what were some of like your most pleasant experiences from that challenge? Yeah, there was definitely some interesting surprises. I mean, the the Resistance games on the PS3 were a fun set of games that I didn't even realize I had at the time. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I did play about nine Metal Gear games last year. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what gives you the honor of being here. <laughs> of all our guests, you earned it the most. We're like, who knows Metal Gear? It's like, well, PlayStation beat all of them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I missed about three or five. I can't remember if you count the PSP games. Yeah, yeah Metal Gear Acid, huh? And like Ghost yeah. Babble and stuff. Oh, Ghost Bubble is terrific, dude. Uh, I, I, we're not gonna get in that, but Ghost Bubble is one of my favorite Metal Gears, to be honest. Yeah. Ooh, duly noted. I, I had completely forgotten about that game. Yeah. Like, unlike Paul, my, my goal is just one Metal Gear game per year. <laughs> so, it's good to know that Ghost Bubble is something good. It'll give me something to, it'll give me something to do in a few years when I run out of the mainline games. Yeah. Dude, get your DS Lite or something and just take it on the go. It's it's a really really good game. It's it's very much like the MSX games. So yeah. it's more like Metal Gear Two. So ah. without, without getting into too much of a digression, it's like Metal Gear Two, but with the dialogue and the mechanics of Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. So it's a good one. I it, it's not canon. Uh, I think Kojima discredited it as canon, but who really gives a crap about canon? Yeah, uh, I know, right? Yeah. I yeah, I don't really have time for for that kind of stuff. I just want a good Metal Gear game. That's that's really kind of the bottom line. Yeah. Um yeah. and uh and speaking of Metal Gear, I guess we should get in there, yeah? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um although since we're asking, hey Paul, so what was your first experience with Metal Gear? Solid that is. 
my first experience was the official PlayStation Magazine demo when that released. I think that was the beginning of two, uh, 1999. Oh, right on. And it was literally just the first 15 minutes of the game where you have to sneak into the facility. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, at the time, I didn't have a PlayStation, so I was playing it around my friend's house. And going from Donkey Kong Country 3 to that was quite a shock for me. <laughs> <laughs> I literally could not get in that elevator. <laughs> I mean, because even even if you had a PlayStation, all of the games that came before it could not compare to what Metal Gear Solid provided in terms of depth and uh, engrossing story and mechanics. So it, it was literally like going from 2D to 3D. I, I feel like this is really where the PlayStation really established itself as a grown-up platform. So yeah. it, it, it really was a, a sea change for gaming. No, I mean, because cause I agree. I think, and and it's sort of like building off of what was being said before, as what Paul had said is like, he just wants to play a good Metal Gear game. But I feel like Metal Gear is one of those series that has like, if not the best, like one of the best track records of just like each game, even when they're like weird spinoffs is still like consistently pretty good. You know what I mean? Like, even the ones that come out and, like, initially people are like, eh, over time people are like, no, this one's also good. No, Metal Gear Solid 2 still sucks, Marnie. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what about I don't the know, man. Demo? I've, I've kind of I've kind of come around on, on Metal uh, Gear Solid 2. That's exactly I played it last year. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what I'm talking about. Because I remember people talking about uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 when it came out and saying, like, uh, this one's not as good like the it's even more cutscenes it's essentially like a movie you barely play anything and now like over the years people are like no metal gear solid 4 is like really solid uh, no oh, i think actually it's well it's done sir well done <laughs> <laughs> really solid uh, <laughs> <Gosh>. <laughs> you just caught that didn't you <laughs> Uh, well, I guess let me talk about my experience since uh, Paul just said his. I also had my first experience with the demo, except mine was a little bit different. I, I didn't get, as you know, any magazines or any type of commercial releases because I was in Cuba, um, a communist island. So I I don't know how, but one of my neighbors managed to get a hold of a demo disc. I don't remember if it was the official PlayStation magazine demo disc, but... For whatever reason, I got it. And mm. uh, by this time, my PS1 was on its last legs. So you basically had to turn it sideways. I didn't put it in the freezer like Paul, but <laughs> you know, I basically <laughs> tried everything else I could in order to get games running. But for whatever reason, uh, Metal Gear Solid worked. And for my impressive young mind of 90 years old or so, as I was back then, uh, it was really mind-blowing. I, I couldn't really understate that. Um, and I think just the cinematics, how it started, and you start, you know, with him kind of coming off the, the submarine and then just uh, scuba diving all the way into the base. Mm-hmm. And there's this angelic choir music just coming behind. Um, and just how it sets it up as a movie, it really blew me away. It then took me like, 25 30 minutes to figure out what the hell to do um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i think that was most of our experiences um but as soon as i as i played that demo and i got managed to get a hold of what i needed to do i must have played that demo 30 something times or so um but strangely enough that was the same year i came to the united states and i was not able to get metal gear solid again until many years later 
So for oh, a wow. long time, my experience with Metal Gear Solid was my experience with that demo. So it wasn't after Metal Gear Solid 2 that I actually played through the entirety of Metal Gear Solid 1. Yeah. So for me, it was kind of backwards, which also kind of goes to show how brilliant Metal Gear Solid is because I played it after the second one and I played it many years after its release and I was still blown away by it. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul, what, uh, what was your experience? It was because I was a little bit older than you guys. I think I was like 18 or 19 at the time. You were like and, 30. Uh, what's that? You were like 30. <laughs> Sorry, Ozzy, I can't hear you. You were like 30. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you. <laughs> Jerk. Um, no, I was, I was, I think 18 or 19 at the time. And uh, some of my friends, like I, I had known about the release and my friends, some of my friends had played it upon release and they were hyping it up, hyping it up. And so... You know, some of these guys, I'm like, eh, I'm sure it's good, whatever. You know, I didn't really think too much about it. Yeah. But I knew I had to play it, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was maybe like a month, six weeks after release that I first started playing it. And yeah, man, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Like I was hooked right from when Snake enters the elevator and the, um, and the marquee pops up, Metal Gear Solid. I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. Like this is this is incredible. I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's almost like a James Bond movie, right? I mean, it starts with this kind of intro, and then all of a sudden, like after you play through a little bit of it, the title scene comes in. Um, yeah, and again, it's so cinematic. I I don't think before that games really paid attention to, to cinematography and camera positioning which was something that Metal Gear Solid, because of Hideo Kojima's tendency towards cinematic skills and techniques, you know, it really paid a lot of attention to cinematography and, and, and how to present um, your camera work, etc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like when I, I was working at EB Games at the time, and I remember, I distinctly remember an interaction with one couple that came in and they were looking for a game for the guy right it wasn't like a gift or anything even though it was christmas season and and i pulled metal gear solid off the shelf and i'm like look you guys have to play this game and i went on and on about it and i was like look it's like a movie but a game <laughs> and there's and there's nothing else like it and i think after like 20 minutes of me going on about it they were like okay buddy just like shut up i just want to buy the game <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, and I think back then, most people wanted their games to be like movies. I yeah. think now that's kind of a dirty word. Uh, yeah. You know, you talk about Uncharted as well. This is just a linear uh, movie like romp in which, you know, the game kind of plays itself. I, I don't think about that about Uncharted. I don't think like that about Uncharted, but many people think that way. Um, Paul, you may think that way. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I think at the time, everyone really wanted to have that cinematic experience from their games because we were kind of high on the idea of these are polygonal graphics, these are 3D graphics, mm. finally games are going to look like movies. Yeah. And this game not only did that from a, a look perspective, from an aesthetic perspective, but it also did so from a dialogue and storyline perspective. So yep. it, it really achieved everything that you would want from a cinematic experience. Now... Now, Arnie, being the baby of the group, what was uh, what was your first experience with Metal Gear Solid? Um, 
So I'm going to have to clarify something real quick because I feel like I say this a lot is that like whenever I'm asked about my first experience with these games, I usually say I saw it at a friend's house. And <laughs> the reason for that is because at the time, um, my parents were the ones who were buying my games for me. So I, I really didn't have like a lot of input. Um, yeah. So I had like seminal classics like Ten Pin Alley, uh, Big Old Bass 2, <laughs> uh, a bunch of skateboarding games uh and dave miro's pro bmx so that was like what i was sort of playing but when i go to my friend's house you know one of them had the dreamcast and that's how i found out about like jet set and crazy taxi and all the stuff and then the other one had a playstation and so that's how i found like games like ape escape and metal gear solid and i remember metal gear solid like the first thing i remember about it is seeing the box and being like Mm -hmm. this looks cool as hell like just the the white on the on the lettering on it the fact that it wasn't like a bunch of art that it was just like very minimalist i remember like really caught my eye back then it's and, almost arrogant yeah. right like we don't need anything else on this cover <laughs> this game is awesome here's the name of it and whatever yeah and it, and it has a description on the logo tactical espionage action that's yeah. really Which all you need to i know. just can't get enough of i can't get enough of tactical <laughs> espionage action i'm like fuck yes we didn't know we wanted sorry. tactical espionage action, and lo and behold, Hideo Kojima brought it. That's right. The <laughs> Can I just for say, tea. we had a different box art over here. <laughs> oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right, you did. We had but yours had the, uh, the box art. It was Solid it, Snake, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. Solid Snake, and it was the artwork that they used for the rest of the booklet was actually on the cover. Yeah. And yeah. that was amazing Which, artwork, too. Yeah, dude. Like I, I like know, it. It's a Joe Hishinkawa artwork. It's it's amazing. I, I actually like it as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, Arnie. Oh, but so then the the thing I most remember about Metal Gear Solid isn't actually like because mostly I would just watch my friend play it, but it was it wasn't even like I don't remember anything about the gameplay or the story for the most part. What I do remember is like because Metal Gear Solid to me has always been the the quintessential game of like look what look what you can do here. Or, like, check this out. You know? Like, it's like, mm, yeah. oh, I can, like, go in the lockers. Oh, I can, like, tap on walls to make, like, the guards come over. You know? Like, every Metal Gear game had, like, a thing that you're like, oh, look at this cool thing that's, like, completely irrelevant for the most part. But it's just cool that you can do it. Like, who would have ever thought to, like, put something like this in a game? And it really added, for the most part, it really added to, like, the sense of, like, I have complete control over this character because like he does things that I would do if I was in this situation. Like it's one of those games where you're like, can I do that? And most of the time you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also liked all the little details. I mean, it's a very, there's a very famous anecdote about how Kojima wanted every single desk in the game to be different. Right. <laughs> Just to kind of create a little bit more immersion. Yeah. And like there was also like, you know, one of the rooms or lockers. I can't remember if it was a, a room or a locker, but it had like a police knots poster. Mm, you yep. know, it like little little details like that, man. Yeah. It was so cool. That was really cool, too. When you like go in the locker and it goes like first person view that like yeah, blew my yeah. mind as a kid. I was like, what the fuck? Let me ask you something. <laughs> uh, Paul, oh, Paul, Canadian Paul. Yes. Let me ask you, had you played the original Metal Gear uh, by the time that you played Metal Gear Solid? Yeah, but like Arnie, it was at a friend's house. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it was, 
back then with the NES being a kid, if you're at a friend's house and he's playing a game like Metal Gear, I wait like five minutes and I'm like, okay, let's play Double Dragon because <laughs> then I can hold the controller too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's kind of how it was. Like, it wasn't like when we got older and the games looked better and it was actually fun to watch someone else. Like, now we, we pass the controller around like a joint and it, everybody has a great time. <laughs> but, you know, as a kid, no, it was like, it has to be two players or else, you know, you just start itching. Yeah. And had, had you played any of uh, Kojima's other games by this point or... Or did no. any one of us have played? Had any one of us played like Snatcher? Nope. Um, nope. I imagine Police Nuts we didn't because Police Nuts never came out in the West. No. Snatcher. My cousin had Snatcher on the Sega CD, and he he showed it to me when I was at his place once, and we played it for a little while, and I was like, "Wow, this is super cool!" And then you know, never again, unfortunately. Yeah. And now it's like this. Now it's like this whale of a collector's item. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Metal Gear Solid Kojima really inserted those callbacks to his previous games. Um, like Meryl Silverberg was also in Police Knots. Uh, there was that poster, as you mentioned, Paul. Um, even the the intro uh, theme for the Konami logo that's a Police Knots song. That's the ending song t- to Police Knots. Um, oh yeah. So I feel like this is the first game where people, since they took notice about how good Metal Gear Solid was, they said, "Well, you know, there are these other games that this director did, so let me look into them." And I think Ko- Kojima was very savvy with inserting those callbacks to those earlier games. Hundred percent. I mean, we'll talk about Kojima in a little bit, but you know, what can you what can you say, man? Like, very very clever guy. Yep. Do you want to take a break, Paul? Yes, sir. Yeah, we'll take a break, and when we come back, we're just going to go over some of the games that came before Metal Gear Solid and set it up for us. And we're back. And so yeah, before we get to Metal Gear Solid, uh, just some quick notes about the first three NES games. I think that kind of, we kind of do need to go over the NES games just to kind of set the table and and see where MGS came from. Um, So the first one would be the original Metal Gear. And that was originally released on the MSX, a Japanese computer, and that was July 1987. Uh, much like Metal Gear Solid, top-down action game. And then the one that we know probably more closely is the NES version. So Metal Gear for the MSX ported over to the Famicom, and that was shortly afterwards, and notably without Kojima's involvement, also in 1987. Um, So... Question for you guys, um, Paul. I know that you can go back to the NES. Did you ever play the NES or the MSX versions? I have played the port of the MSX version on the Xbox 360. Oh, right on! Yeah, because it's on the it's on the Legacy Collection, right? Yeah, we got the HD collection over here, which That's was right. two, three, and Peace Walker, and it's mm-hmm. buried in the menu system for Metal Gear Three. 
Oh man, I you know I had actually just found out about that only a few weeks ago. Um, that the HD collection actually had these old MSX games, and now I mean I already have Metal Gear Solid Three for the PS2, and I hate buying games twice. I really do, but I might have to for this one just as, so I can play the original. As far as I know, it is on the PS2 version as well, but I've never yes. actually checked to see. But it's no, but it's it's on, on uh, the Metal Gear Solid Three subsistence. Yes. Yeah. But isn't Subsistence the one that's, like, insanely expensive? I don't mm. know, actually. But Subsistence, if you're, okay. if you're going to play Metal Gear Solid 3 on the PS2, then Subsistence is the way to go because it changed the cameras from that fixed camera angle to uh, behind the, the the back camera angle as well. So it made so many improvements to the game that it, it literally is the best version of Metal Gear Solid 3 that you can play. And it included... The original and the sequel. So what they did for the HD version is they just ported Subsistence because it already had all those games. Ooh, that's too bad because I I just started playing three, and I'm playing <laughs> and I'm playing the original PS2 version that I bought like over ten years ago. That's totally fine. So. That's the one I played, and and it's perfectly fine. It's just that in Metal Gear Solid Three, without getting into too much of a digression, that's where the limits of the fixed camera angle really started straining the game mechanics because since you had this wide open space where you know you had kind of a more vertical element to the play style that really stretched those camera angles because many times you couldn't really see where things were and so you had to be using the first person view quite a lot and the first person view in Metal Gear Solid games has never been the most uh smooth so no. uh so i think that's why on the subsistence release they really try to fix that and and that's why it makes it for the best experience for metal gear solid 3 but i don't think it really should affect you paul because that's how it originally came out and that's how i played it so mm-hmm. it, it should be fine as a general rule that's kind of how i prefer to play the games is the you know the original version right mm-hmm. um because it's the original version um Eh, yeah, whatever. I'll just continue with it. It's not a big deal. But yes, we don't want to digress too much here. Um, Arnie, Ozzy, either of you play the NES one or I, the MSX I, I one? I didn't play the NES one until very recently when I started collecting uh, really uh, on a dedicated basis, uh, which was around 2016 when I started just... I call it collecting. Some people will call it hoarding. Um, but, <laughs> Potatoes, potatoes. But Metal Gear, Metal Gear was one of the first games that I actually collected for the NES because I saw it and and that kind of set off an itch. And I said, you know, I really want to experience other games uh, that are out there that I never uh, ran into, particularly because they preceded my time with gaming. But I played the original Metal Gear and... I couldn't get past the, the, the forest level or the, the forest infiltration. It's, it's a mm-hmm. very unintuitive game. And yes. I think in some ways broken, um, possibly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't think that the game really does a good job of explaining its mechanics. And um, it just doesn't make, you know, 20, 30 years on that we're playing it now. Yeah, 30 years on. It doesn't really make for a pleasant experience, so I was just kind of wondering what the hell I, I, I had to do, and I, I just could never get past the dogs, I couldn't get past the guards, and so I said, ah, oh, you know what, Let's screw this. Uh, but I did play the MSX version, and I played it even before that, um, and the MSX version is, is much better, uh, understandably, but... Uh, you know, it's kind of like a, for me, since I played it so much after its release, I 
it was just kind of like nice to play because you could see where the game came from and you could see that a lot of the elements of Metal Gear Solid were already there in 1986 and and that's just really impressive. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it it's not a game that I don't want to say that it has an age well because it has to some extent, but but it's not a game that I find enjoyable to go back to uh really. Yeah, I agree. Aside from aside from the amusement that I get with Snake being able to punch a dog, um <laughs> I don't really I don't really have any strong desire to play Metal Gear cuz you know, like I said, I I saw a buddy playing it when I was a kid and it just I don't know, man, it just didn't look uh it just didn't look that interesting to me. And when I hear about it now from like your experience, Ozzy, um I, I I would much rather try the MSX version rather than the than the NES one, just because, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, and it's it's a game that it's it's rudimentary still. I mean, I I think really what it established was that before then you just had this arcade like experiences where it was very fast paced, Twitch, high score focused experiences, and and Metal Gear wasn't about that. And and as you put in your outline, Paul, it was very much because of the hardware limitations, but at the same time, it really lent the way, it paved the way for this kind of more slower paced experiences. Um, and I think this was really 1986, 1987 was kind of the inflection point for gaming, where we really started transitioning from arcade experiences to more console experiences. So you had yeah. Metroid, you had Legend of Zelda, you had the, the Rygar port on the NES. Mm-hmm. All of those games, uh, for example, Rygar was a port of the arcade, but on the console, it made for a very different game, which was much more slower paced, more adventure focused. And Metal Gear was just one of the additions to that from a, from a different angle, which was it was action, but it was stealth action. So yep. I, I think really it just has to be commended for what it did for this style of game. And uh, not to, and I, I know I go on about the comedy value of a lot of these things, um, but Metal Gear also gifted us with the main enemy, uh, Colonel Vernon Katafi. What was that uh, on the on the booklet on the manual uh, for the uh, for Metal Gear? For the yeah, North American there, and then there was another one. There was another one for Snake's Revenge, which we'll get to in a moment. <laughs> um, but yeah, Katafi uh, was the one that was in the original Metal Gear, and that's a play on uh, Muammar. Uh, boy, did I even pronounce that correctly? <laughs> Muammar Al Gaddafi. Yep, yep. He was um, he was big back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh but it also, also blessed get, us with Sean Connery as big boss. It sure did. Um yeah, all kinds of like movie references. Like I don't know if you guys knew but the original cover for Metal Gear um it's basically a picture of Kyle Reese from Terminator. Yep. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the and the portrait of uh, Snake I think is Mel Gibson or based on Mel Gibson. So Yes. So Kojima just yes. straight up just stole that shit. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It, it was just well, like, no, no. He he paid homage, Ozzy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Such a fine line, Paul. Because wasn't that a, wasn't that a thing in Police Knots too, where like the two guys are uh, yeah, Riggs and Mortal yeah, from Lethal Weapon. From Lethal yeah, Weapon. absolutely. <laughs> I, I talked about this quite a bit, guys. But it, it, you know, I I think that the Japanese, at least around that time, they were just so happy to just let's just call it borrowing yeah. from other media. And they just straight up lifted it and just put it in their games, mm-hmm. um, which to some, that may be a knock against Kojima, you know, which is basically, oh, he's just doing, 
something derivative of something he really likes. And I think to some extent that's true of a lot of his early work. But I think over the years, he has really just come into his own voice. Particularly now with Death Stranding, I don't think there's anything out there that you can kind of compare to Death Stranding. I mean, it's it's just a completely holy, batshit insane. I think think as soon as that game comes out, somebody will find some reference from something. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, it's Kojima. (laughs) You all have to have some references. Nobody knows what the actual game is about, do we? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Paul, it's, it's just, this was a game that very much took the 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 cinematic love that Kojima had for movies uh, and put it into a game and you know even Snake Snake is a, a play on Snake Plissken from Escape from New York John Carpenter's yep. Escape from New York so I know many years later uh, John Carpenter actually talked about the the studio that owned the rights to Escape from New York considering an action against Kojima and you know John Carpenter didn't want to go ahead with that he was just like nah this is this is not worth it mm-hmm. and he was actually kind of honored that he did so but it literally it was just taking from this or taking from that and i mean come on he was Kojima was probably like 25 at the time that he created this he's just like this excited young man you know that just put all the things that he loved into this one game and that's what yep. it feels like it's funny you should yep. reference the Escape from New York part because coming back to MGS later on, it is basically the same story. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> essentially, and, and Metal Gear Solid 2, it even had uh, Snake Plissken. Um, yeah. <laughs> actually, Plissken, which was uh, the, the alter ego of, of uh, Solid Snake, mm. uh, which, again, is a reference to Escape from New York and the character that Kurt Russell plays. So yep. I mean, that I- kind of... I'll round that up quickly, so because we're going to get the Metal Gear Solid later. But the game starts exactly the same with the submersible infiltrating in an enemy territory to rescue a president of some kind. So now, I guess I, 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 I'm surprised then that we didn't get a game where Snake goes in on a surfboard and basically rides into whatever infiltration mission on a surfboard because that was Escape from LA, the sequel. Uh, <laughs> so I, I guess, uh, you know, that was not allowed or something. I don't know, but that would have been pretty impressive to see. <laughs> to maybe, see maybe, Snake on a surfboard? Oh yeah, that yeah. would have been great. That would have been With something some, Raiden like, would have done. Music. Yeah, that would have been something Raiden would have done. <laughs> that, that, that's a very Raiden-like move. Yeah, it's Metal Gear Rising 2, that is. i would have paid good money for that anyhow um the next metal gear uh metal gear snakes revenge on the nes um come on that's not not the real metal gear (laughs) yeah yeah i know i know i'm getting to it i'm getting to it um but it is notably uh released only on the nes not on the famicom Mm -hmm. and it was released in north america april 1990 and uh, PAL region two years later because PAL always got screwed. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Always. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and I think, you know, Metal Gear Snake's Revenge, it gets a lot of hate nowadays, but, I, you know, I don't think it's a bad game. And actually, it was done by the people that made Castlevania. So there's that. It's not like it was outsourced to some, I don't know, Indian team or something. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know who they outsourced it to back in the day. Um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was the people that made Castlevania. So it, it's not a bad game per se, but it doesn't have Kojima's involvement, and that definitely shows. I I respectfully disagree with you about the not a bad game part. <laughs> I think I think it you can could disrespectfully have been a good game. disagree with him. 
fucking Ozzy, <laughs> I hate your opinion. <laughs> this game is terrible. No, no, it's it's there not it's not like it's that bad, but like dude, those side scrolling parts are are like legitimately awful. Yeah. Well, um and if they had just kind of stuck to the overhead and not included those side scrolling parts, and I mean even the overhead sections, there's a lot of I don't know. I, I found that there were a lot of flaws there. A lot yeah. of, uh, much like with the original Metal Gear, a lot of unintuitive gameplay. Yeah. And uh, and just very very difficult. But I mean, you know, I say very very difficult. But what NES game wasn't very very difficult, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and I guess you could levy that complaint against a lot of games, Paul, and from the NES era, where it's like exactly. Well, and, and and this section was just blatant bullshit. Yeah. And you got to think that this came out in 1990. You know, Legend of Zelda 2 had come out just a few years earlier, and that also included those side-scrolling levels. So I think it was kind of the, you know, the, the zeitgeist of the time where you had to include a side-scrolling level of some sort. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. There's there's no doubt about that. It's just that the difference is that the ones in Legend of Zelda 2 were good, <laughs> and the ones in Snake's Revenge were garbage. So Yeah, um, I, I, guess, I guess if they had made it more like Contra... I guess it would have been a little bit better if if you had like the original Metal Gear top down gameplay and then Contra on top of it. Yeah. That would have been and, a much better game. Yeah, and to be fair, I think of that with every single game I've ever played in my life. <laughs> if only this could be more like Contra, yeah. it would actually be better. <laughs> it would have been perfect. And two quick things. One is I can't believe we got through talking about the original Metal Gear without talking about the amazing translation. Um, oh, dude! And two, the translation's so good because I think that's like that might be the biggest legacy that that game has has like left in the long term. Is like I feel asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I know I the truck have start moving. Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> but the other thing is with regards to this is I think that people didn't realize this then as of yet but i think that metal gear and i think we'll see this going forward is that metal gear uh as a series specifically is really tied into hideo kojima and his like sort of quirks and how he likes to like make things and so when you remove him from the equation the game sort of loses that sort of Metal Gear aspect to it that makes it, like, recognizably Metal Gear. Yeah, it becomes yep. a generic action title. Correct. Because yeah. I think Kojima has a has a talent for, like we've talked about before, like, just little details, minutiae, and, like, I mean, we'll get into it with Metal Gear Solid, but, like, adding things that I feel like very few other video game creators are comfortable with putting in their games. Yep. Yeah, no, dude, uh, absolutely. Like, there's a Kojima game is is unmistakably his. Yeah, probably yep. more so than most developers that I've seen. Well, I suppose Kojima was so pissed off that they did Metal Gear Snake's Revenge without him that he decided that he was going to make his own sequel. That's <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah. Um. Although, if you guys don't mind, can I please read an excerpt from the Snake's Revenge manual? Yeah, but you have to do it in a Shakespearean aspect. <laughs> <laughs> can I do it? Can I do it in like an action movie voice? Yeah, please go ahead. Because it it, it really out. like it really needs that kind of movie trailer. I'm gonna do like a terrible impression, but like, man, going through this Snake's Revenge manual. So originally, when I was looking up Snake's Revenge, I 
I was like, I, I looked up who the main antagonist or the character is, right? And I saw the name Hayarola Kakamami. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not, that is not a real, that is not a real Dude, thing. And so I went to, and because of that, like, I was like, oh, I got to search for that. So I did a Google search for Hayarola Kakamami. I don't know and it what took the me, results were that way. <laughs> oh, my. Surprisingly not as X-rated as you think. Um, but it led me to a wiki page with so much nonsense on it that I was like, I was like, somebody had to have made this up, right? I'm like, it's a Wikipedia page, right? So people can write whatever the fuck they want. And... And then I went and I looked up the manual and everything on that Wikipedia page that I thought was complete nonsense was actually from the manual. So just real quick here, I'm only going to only a couple paragraphs, right? This is just this is just a taste, just a taste of what's in this amazing manual. (laughs) Go ahead. All right. Your fellow commandos from the Foxhound Battalion sit across from you. One sharpens his knife. The other polishes his grenades. Sexual innuendo unintended. No one speaks, but through the silence a message comes across loud and clear. This will be the most dangerous mission ever attempted, even more so than the infiltration of Colonel Vernon Katafi's stronghold. For now, you're challenging Hyarola Kakamami and his army of raging lunatics. And you must overcome untold hundreds of oozy-toting soldiers, a heavily armed battleship, and a loaded locomotive to reach your objective, destroying Hyarola's ultra-chic nuclear attack tank. (laughs) Or else, the world be knocked to its knees by a fellow who has won the Merciless Man of the Year award eight straight times. I kid you not. How is this a thing? How? <laughs> the Merciless Man of the Year Award. Eight straight times. It, it's amazing, dude. I, I have several questions. <laughs> I have several questions. Number one, who polishes grenades? Yeah. That seems that. very dangerous. <laughs> I don't think that's safe. Number two, is a Hyarola supposed to be like sort of a vaguely racist like Japanese way of saying high roller or is it no, just it's like actually, this is just a nonsense word that rhymes with Ayatollah <laughs> it is it, it's not a vaguely racist Japanese it's a 100% racist American <laughs> take on Ayatollah Khomeini this yeah. is very American I can guarantee you that this did not come from the Japanese <laughs> Um, and it even, more th- it even observes continuity. It even talks about Vernon Katafi. It so sure does. I know. It, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> one other quick thing from the manual, cause I'm, this is a bit of a digression here. Um, the bio on Solid Snake. Solid Snake is a black belt in 32 forms of Oriental combat. <laughs> How many forms of Oriental combat are there? <laughs> Great question, Paul. <laughs> I feel like this is a good example of language that has sort of become less okay to use. <laughs> well, there's, there's so many things wrong with it. It's fantastic. Uh, I, I think PC-ness is the, the least of this, its concerns, honestly. <laughs> but also, Paul, uh, you wrote this yesterday, right? Like, you, you actually made this whole thing up. 
I will send you the PDF. <laughs> I, I, I will send you the PDF. This this does exist. Well, and it's well let me let me ask you, Paul. Does it actually say sexual innuendo unintended? Yeah, I want. No, that was my that own. Well. That was my own creative flair. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now, so now that just leads me to the ultimate conclusion, which is that somewhere out there, there is a man or woman who received American currency in exchange for their work on this manual. Yep. Yep. Well, God bless them. And I mean. <laughs> Can you say they didn't earn it, really? <laughs> to tell the truth, if they, if that was put into like a Grindhouse movie, I would probably watch it. That's true. Yeah. That's fair. That is very fair. I, I'm in, dude. <laughs> this is one of those late-night Cinemax movies from back in the day of Cable. That would be amazing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, man. That sounds like the plot um, to Navy Seals 5. So, with Charlie Sheen coming back for its for his last go around, Navy Seals Five: The Sealing. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, Metal Gear Two, I guess, uh, did not follow that plot. No, Metal Gear Two <laughs> did not. Um, so the the anecdote about Metal Gear Two, um, actually, before the anecdote, Metal Gear Two released only for the MSX, never released in North America. So, thus, by far the least played in North America. Yep. Um, if one was to believe Hideo Kojima, the inspiration for Metal Gear 2 came after he chatted with a colleague who was working on Snake's Revenge, and his colleague was like, his colleague was basically like, Kojima-san, this game is terrible, we need you to make a real one. And so Kojima, like a superhero, swooped in and made Metal Gear 2 for the MSX. Um, and I mean, say what you will about Kojima... Uh, that Metal Gear 2 for the MSX is considered, and I believe rightfully so, one of the best 8-bit games ever made. Yeah, It's oh, definitely I've, I've, one of the best looking 8-bit games I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I think Metal Gear 2 is where we really see Kojima kind of adopting his own voice. Mm. And this came right after Snatcher. So Kojima had already released Snatcher by then on the on the PC platforms over there in Japan. Um, it hadn't been released on the Sega CD yet, but um, it had already been released in PC in Japan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I first played this game, it was on Metal Gear Solid 3. It was on the the disc. And what blew me away was that it really portrayed a very cinematic experience, much like Metal Gear Solid 1 did. Um, it has this intro scene and it has all these, the staff is all put and you see the signs of Metal Gear and it's, it's very elaborate, particularly for an 8-bit game. So yeah. it, it, it really kind of manifested the idea that, you know, this guy really has his own voice. And I don't think anyone at the time said, Oh, this is a Hideo Kojima game. Mm-hmm. But I think for, for Kojima, this was the, the game where he really said, look, I'm going to put in my own voice and, you know, you're going to notice me. Yeah. I think... And, um, sorry, Arnie, go ahead. Oh, uh, the only thing I was I was going to say is that it's crazy to think, because this game didn't come out in uh, North America or Europe, I think it's so crazy to see, like, when Metal Gear Solid came out, all these things that people were like, oh, this is so cool, this is, like, crazy. I would have never thought to put something like this in a game. But a lot of those things were already present in Metal Gear 2, in 1990. And that's, like, insane to me. The fact that, like, (laughs) some of these things that even in 98, 99 were still, like, blowing people away because they'd never seen it before. Like, nine years before that, 
was was already something that that he had thought up and he had like started implementing in games. Yeah, I yeah. found the same yeah. thing when I played Metal Gear for the first time earlier this year. And especially with like hiding in boxes in the back of lorries in order to transport yourself across the map. Yep. Uh, yep. I thought, you know, Metal Gear Solid had pioneered that, but obviously, no. <laughs> no, and, and, and it does feel like the only thing that Metal Gear Solid did was move this gameplay into 3D. Mm-hmm. And of course, all the dialogue and stuff like that. But it, it really does feel like a full fledged Metal Gear. Like, as you said, Arnie, every idea that was in Metal Gear Solid. Has a, was already implemented in this game in some way or another. So it's it's just a huge shame that we never got that. Mm-hmm. But I don't see how you could have translated this experience into one of the consoles at the time. Yeah. You know, maybe the Super NES would have been able to uh, port it, but I'm not quite sure that it would have. Yeah. I well, mean- and I mean, not to be cynical, but the port probably would have been mangled. Yeah, well, it probably would have sucked. That's what I was going to say is with the experience with the NES, we definitely didn't want to get a gimped uh, Metal Gear 2. You know what I mean? No, no. And I especially like at that time, like if it's having the Nintendo seal of quality put on it, oh man, I can only imagine what kind of story elements would have been taken out, what kind of dialogue would have been taken out. Yeah. You know, I mean, no thanks. I, I think, I'd rather just... I think that ultimately we can all agree that they just realized that they would never be able to top uh what was his name Hyarola Hyarola <laughs> <laughs> Kakamane There you go. They were like, yeah, this is this is the pinnacle. I think we've we've exhausted all possibilities with this series. Yes, the the idea well is dry. <laughs> now, Paul, did you actually beat this uh when you were going through your uh whole Metal Gear uh journey? I did not, I'm afraid. Metal Gear 2 is one of the only ones I still have yet to play. Mm. Oh, no kidding. Are you planning on doing so? I am planning on doing so, but I actually wanted to ask you guys who have played it a question, because somebody's told me that at some point during that game, you can equip an owl to your inventory. (laughs) I did not know this. (laughs) Oh my god, I didn't know this either. Somebody told me this on Instagram, and I'm not too sure if it's true or not, but someone said Mm. that you can actually put an owl into your inventory, so later on in the game, you can pull the owl out, and those hooting will make one of the guards think it's nighttime, so they'll go to sleep. (laughs) See, I don't know if that's true, but I could definitely see that being a thing. So, the fact that the sun is up... (laughs) I'm not too sure it's not, whether or not it's in an enclosed room or not, but it sounded ridiculous <laughs> to me, and it's always stuck in my memory since. Well, now I have to play it. Like it, this is this is a must now. <laughs> yeah, I, I do believe that one of the things that can prevent you from going back to this game is that some of the sections are very difficult to get through yeah. if you don't have a guide. So it's it's really a game that you kind of need to have a walkthrough handy in some sections yeah. uh, at least you know if you don't want to spend hours upon hours trying to figure it out yourself yeah. that's uh, what yeah. that's what i remember hearing about both of this one and the other msx game was that they're like pretty hard for even even stacked up against other metal gear games yeah yeah, yeah. when i played the first one i used a walkthrough because i found that there was so much backtracking involved mm-hmm. to go back to rooms with a different key card that it, it got yeah. really confusing really quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, but it's a fantastic game, honestly. I I really think that this game, you know, someone should just go ahead and, and release a, a collector's edition for 
you know, whatever system and release it physically so I can have it. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, the Switch, this game would be great on the Switch. So, of course, Nintendo yeah, of should course. get to work on that. On, but Konami doesn't release any games anymore, so who knows? <laughs> well, um, yeah, we can't, we can't get our me. hopes up for that kind of they thing. They gave you Metal Gear Survive. What more do you want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, was so we talk about right. save that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, on that note, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, it'll be time for Metal Gear Solid. Alrighty, and we're back. And now it is time for the star of the show, Metal Gear Solid. Indeed, man. Actually, you'll insert the actual music. Can, can we just say that Metal Gear Solid, the first one, had so many sound effects and sounds that became emblematic of video games you for know such what? a long I was, time? Before we started Dude. recording, that was one of the things I wanted to bring up. Like, the sounds of Metal Gear are like... Some are of so the particular. most iconic sounds in gaming, like the yeah, the thing when the you get discovered, sound. the codex sound, like all that stuff is is really like it, it's the like, dying sound. Whenever when you die and game over, it's like <laughs> snake. Yep. Yeah, all of that just became so ingrained in our minds. It's mm-hmm. just literally, I don't think there are many other games where the sounds just give you a complete image of the game as soon as you hear them yeah i think very the few, only one like mario yeah i think the the one i was thinking of off the top of my head was like street fighter 2 oh yeah that's yeah that's one. that's another one yeah i um, guess but people... mario mario's a good one i guess yeah, mario is, is the better one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like my my whole windows theme in 99 was metal gear like you know minimizing windows maximizing oh windows God. Whenever I got, whenever I got a call on ICQ, totally dating myself with that. <laughs> but whenever I got a call, it was the codex, codex sound. sound. Dude, I think I, I, I think all of us at some point had the, the the codex sound for text messages. At least I, I did. Hundred percent. I completely forgot that you could like apply themes to Windows to make all the sounds different, <laughs> and it would change the mouse cursor too, wouldn't it? Uh, I didn't care for that. I excluded that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I used yeah, to alert this, to the text messages for about two years. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. Yeah. I mean, who, like Ozzy said, who didn't, right? Like, it's just the best. I want to do it now, but I yeah. can't because now everything's set to vibrate and, and so on, right? Which yeah. obviously makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, Metal Gear Solid uh, released October 21st, 1998. And that was in North America. Uh, just in time for Christmas. Yep. Uh, no Christmas in Europe, though. No. They got it in February '99. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, Indeed. That's, that's really unfortunate. <laughs> no, it's uh, just Paul. it's just in time for tax returns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Everything um, in Europe is late. All the bloody time. Yeah, you guys get so, everything late, guys. As if we get it. Oh man. <laughs> well, I was gonna say yeah, it's, that's it's one of two things. It's either you get it late, or you're the only ones that get it. That's the only two options. Or you don't get it at all. Or you dude, don't I get mean. it at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The old uh, the old Terra Enigma effect. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I listen, I, I mean, 
it's it's kind of something where I'm kind of surprised that Metal Gear Solid it, it, it was really almost like a sleeper hit because Konami around this time in 1998 they were really struggling to transition their games to 3D. I mean, we only we talked about Contra for a whole episode and Castlevania also had a lot of struggles in 3D, but I think that in terms of Konami games, Metal Gear Solid was the first kind of successful tr- transition to 3D in terms of an established franchise. Uh, yeah, I think every, th- this year was- this year also brought Silent Hill for for Konami. So I think it was the first successful year for Konami in bringing 3D. Yeah. yeah. Actually, no, Silent Hill was 1999. So no, this was the first one. Yeah, it was it was the first one and everything else. Dude, I think you were being nice. Everything else was a tire fire. Like <laughs> they were they were like Contra was an abomination. Yes. Absolute shit. And uh, Castlevania 64 was just, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think I'm being kind if I say subpar. <laughs> But I, I, but Kojima was really. I mean, I, I hear that this was being worked on on the on the three DO uh, before this. Interesting. Uh, I did not know that it was actually. Yeah. Yeah, and so and and they wanted to eventually they transitioned to the PlayStation. I think Kojima said that they wanted to make the best PlayStation game ever. I mean, I I like to think that all developers like to think that they're gonna make the best game ever, but <laughs> you know that's actually not <laughs> the case for the most part. But Kojima was. He said that that's what they wanted to do, and. I don't know, man. I think they achieved it. I'd be interested I, yeah. to visit the alternate timeline where Metal Gear Solid comes out on the 3DO. I, I don't. That would have been very <laughs> because, interesting. Because it either makes the 3DO very relevant or it makes Metal Gear Solid very irrelevant. I don't think we'd be having this chat. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing that could have saved the 3DO, honey. I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, what would yeah, have happened no, is it would have been released and then it would have been ported like six months <laughs> later because no one bought it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you look at like Road Rash was ported, you know, the, the best speed. 3DO game. Yeah, like the, the best 3DO games eventually were just ported yeah. anyway. Yeah, I mean, Gex was um, ported and that was the best game on the 3DO. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. We're going to have a 3DO argument here because I disagree about Gex. But <laughs> anyway. This, no, this we won't be doing that. you want to play Metal Gear on the Sega Saturn now? Ah, <laughs> uh, Paul. Actually, I, let me ask you about that. Because you were a Saturn controller. owner. You were a Saturn owner. What the hell, man? What What was that experience like? Being a Saturn owner and realizing, oh my god, the Saturn doesn't have Metal Gear Solid. I made some very um, bad decisions in my life. Mildly disappointing at first, but by the time Metal Gear Solid came out, I also had a PlayStation, so I no longer cared. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> The games of like the games of like ninety seven were the issue, like Final Fantasy seven and so on, right? Um, for games like that, I would borrow PlayStations from my friends and they would borrow my Saturn. And, you know, it was actually everybody was kinda happy because I had a whole bunch of Saturn games that they always wanted to play that they never played. Um, and I was of course happy to get the Final Fantasy Sevens and the Final Fantasy Tactics mm-hmm. and the Symphony of the Knights, you know what I mean? Those kind of games. So yeah. yeah. It was, it was, there was some mild disappointment, but it was tempered by the fact that I had a lot of resources available to me to play all these games. And then by the time Metal Gear came out, I was like, I just need to own it and be done with it. Yeah. By this time, the Saturn was kind of on its last legs. By by 1998, Saturn was like on life support and, and the Dreamcast was being released, um, that year, I think in Japan and Sega had just given up on the Saturn. 
Correct. Yeah. yeah. In in 98, we had like a handful of Saturn releases in the US. Um, you know, like Panzer Dragoon Saga, some seminal games, but only only a handful of them. Was really, that a 97 so. or 98 game? Uh, Panzer Dragoon Saga was 98. Okay. Yeah. Great year, man. Just absolutely great year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, You're we talk about me, it man. all the time, but 98 was such a great year for games. Yeah, 100%. Um, Paul, let me ask you, did you... So, in Wales, it's late 1998. Are you guys aware of Metal Gear Solid and pissed off that it wasn't there sooner? Uh, to tell the truth, we were aware of it, but I don't think we were aware that it was an American release before ours. I remember... Because okay. I was in school at the time, in high school. And I remember everyone talking about Metal Gear Solid because mm. I didn't have a PlayStation at the time. <clears throat> and everybody amongst my friends group had a PlayStation. And that's all they talked about was Final Fantasy and then it was Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. So so did you have a 64 or did you have a Saturn? I was still rocking my Super Nintendo back then. Oh, nice. I was, That's right, because you went from Donkey Kong Country 3 to Metal Gear. Yeah, I was behind the times. I didn't get my PlayStation until after the PlayStation 2 had come out. So, oh, okay. first time I would have played Metal Gear Solid properly by myself would have been about 2002. Hmm. So, by yeah, then, man. I knew all the tricks from overhearing stuff yeah. in school. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. by the time you reached it, Psycho Mantis was no longer a surprise, right? No, nah, it was just a case of, yeah, I've got to pl- unplug that controller. <laughs> um so for metal gear solid let's just move on to some of the people who've worked on the game here um and the thing about metal gear solid so we we've gone over like nes games in the past and so on and there's usually you know four or five six notable names as far as i can tell with metal gear solid the dominant name is obviously kojima um and so just a little bit about kojima here uh for those who don't know uh, originally, and and he's worked on so few games outside of Metal Gear. He is like the Metal Gear guy. Ended up in video games um, because he couldn't make movies. He wanted to get into the movie industry, couldn't break into that. Ended up in video games. And like, you know, millions of other people would eventually realize, hey, video games are pretty cool. And, uh, and you can make a good living here. Yeah. Um, just... Uh, very, like I said, very few other games, uh, Snatcher, Police Knots, uh, sort of like, I don't even know if I'd call them point and click adventures. They're more text adventures, yeah? Well, yeah, they're text adventures, kind of like, uh, uh, like the, the Netopia or what's the name of the, yeah, I think, Portopia, I think Portopia, right. Portopia, Portopia, I mean, which were pretty big back in the day in Japan, those kind of text based adventure games. Um, so yeah, I don't think point and click. But they were more dialogue-heavy, text-based yeah. adventure games. And extremely stylized, which is what I think helped set them apart. I think that's why they're so sought after now, is because you just on those systems, you, di- you did not see stuff like that. Not in that way, not structured like that, not written like that. They were just incredibly solid games all around. And, and you, could say, yeah. uh, you could say a lot of things about Kojima, but I think you can't argue against the fact that, regardless of your opinion of him, He's just a very passionate guy, and yeah. he really has a very intense love for certain things, and and that love shows in the minutia of his games, like Snatcher and Police Knots. Like Police Knots, it's so heavy in dialogue because he ends up explaining so many different concepts about you know life in space or 
you know, gravity and its effects on the body, things like that, that any other game developer wouldn't really give a crap about. But Kojima just really observes his attention to detail because he's so fascinated by this. And I feel like a lot of his games are really a projection of whatever Kojima is interested in at the time. Mm. So, for example, Metal Gear Solid, it came out in 1998. And that's around the time that the, the Human Genome Project was being completed. And so because of that, there's a lot of focus on DNA and our genome and who we are and what makes us us, what gives us our personality. And is DNA part of what makes you you? And and does that shape your future? Are you bound and is your story pre-written just because of the DNA that runs through your body? Yeah. So whatever Kojima does, it's kind of a reflection of what he's interested in at the moment. Yeah. And I think one of the things that that is always been true about Kojima. I think it completely makes sense that he was coming at it from the point of trying to get into movies because I think he has all he is one of the few I think who has actively sort of tried to make himself a, the brand. Like he's tried to associate himself so closely with all of his projects. Like outside of Shigeru Miyamoto, I think there are very few video game like creators producers people who work on video games especially in the japanese video game industry where i feel like back in the day and even to a certain extent now i think that it was sort of looked down upon to try to like elevate yourself to that to that level to sort of act like you were more important than the team around you in terms of creating something yeah or the publisher itself yeah and so i think kojima was definitely one of those guys who was like no this is my vision my work and i'm going to sort of tie my name to it explicitly and i mean obviously that could have gone terribly right like because if these games were bad then maybe hideo kojima is associated with with terribleness but as as (laughs) as is he is you know uh one of the giants of the video game industry no doubt about it yeah, and I think that, you know, it kind of goes back to that old dash of the nail that sticks out, gets the hammer. Yeah. You know, because of Kojima's penchant for marketing and his kind of larger-than-life personality, um, you had to imagine that at some point Konami would have, you know, hammered him down. Yeah. So his kind of collision with Konami seems almost inevitable yes. in hindsight uh, because it really stood out, you know, compared to the culture in the Japanese uh, environment. Um, So I I think that, you know, like all of the so-called auteurs, Kojima is a great marketer. You know, I mean, honestly, games are a product of teams and all, you know, everyone in that team kind of has something to input, but Kojima is very good at really making it seem at least as if he's the main driving force. And to be honest, it's hard to argue against that because yeah. he has such a distinctive voice. Yeah. Um, you know, there are others like Suda51. I who, was going to say. You um, know, they they have this marketing push behind them as if they're the driving force, but not really. They just kind of, you know, oversee it in some way, whereas other people actually make the game. Yeah. I, but Kojima think, really is very hands-on. Yeah. I think it's and, I think it's inarguable that Kojima is sort of the front runner for the Shinji Mikamis of the world, the Suda 51s, the um what's the name of the guy who does the the uh Nier series? Like, uh Yoko Taro. Yes, Yoko Taro. Like all these people I think are sort of 
taking a page out of Kojima's book and sort of oh, making absolutely. themselves known. Hundred percent. And and this is not to say, like, obviously the 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 other side of this sword is that the as as the positivity sort of gets lauded on Kojima, in retrospect, some of the weirder things are also attributed to Kojima, rightfully so. Like in Police Knots, the fact that you can essentially grope every woman that's in that game um is now something that people look back on and are like, this is pretty weird. Um and now that's something that's sort <laughs> of like, you know, he he takes the good with the bad, but I think he knows how to roll with the punches, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and let me just say, Arnie, it's kind of something that continued to grow after the first Metal Gear Solid. And not to get into a digression, that's where Metal Gear Solid as a, as a series started losing me a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, Metal Gear Solid 3 brought me back, and Metal Gear Solid 4 to me was fantastic. I know that game gets a lot of hate, yeah. but I, I love that game. But kind of the weirder, quirkier humor and yeah. some of the more uncomfortable parts of that humor um, or the kind of problematic PC aspects of it, it just kind of started rubbing me the wrong way later on in, in, in his games. So yeah. I think Metal Gear Solid has, the first one has those elements, but they're not as prominent. Yeah. Like, for example, Johnny Sasaki in that game ends up with his butt sticking out, you know, yep. naked and with his butt <laughs> blurred out. I mean, that's that's just funny. Yeah. you know. But eventually yeah. it kind of became a running joke where he just had to poop all the time and stuff like that. And, you know, even in Metal Gear Solid 4, where Johnny Sasaki started getting more of a, of a main role, you still had that humor. And mm-hmm. so it kind of contrasted very sharply with the story it was trying to tell. Yeah. And I was just thinking, like, Kojima, can you just stop this shit? Well, just- I remember there was, I think I saw Did You Know Gaming about it, but it was a moment, I'm pretty sure it was in Metal Gear Solid 2. And I can't remember the character's name, but it's a female character who's sort of like kidnapped and you have to find her. And when you find her, she's sort of tied up sitting on the ground, I think. And you can sort of like crouch on a table across from her. And if you hit her with the uh, trank gun, her legs sort of spread and you can see her underwear, like stuff like that. That's such a Japanese thing, dude. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) I've got no time for that. Like it's like in Metal Gear, even Metal Gear Solid, right? Like there's there's the scene where he's checking out Meryl's ass. Yes. Oh yes, right? yes, yes. And and he makes like he makes like some kind of comment or a noise or something like that. I'm okay with that because that's every fucking guy ever. <laughs> Absolutely. But as soon as you pull out the camera and start taking pictures of said ass, yeah, then it starts getting a bit yeah. weird. Because I remember yeah. there was it was all like a Easter egg kind of where like if you take a picture of her, I think it's like is it the Colonel's daughter? Or something like that. Nice. But essentially, yeah. yeah, if you take a picture of her while she's doing that, then you get like a, a special codec where the colonel's like, what the hell, blah, blah. But then they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. let me check it out. Like, you know, it's like really weird. But there was or, also for example, a thing where you, uh, if you complete Metal Gear Solid a couple of times, so you actually get a costume change. She oh, doesn't right. wear trousers. She's walking around in her <laughs> oh, underwear. Really? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. I didn't know yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that either, man. That's, you well, I, I, wow. I, I'll tell you something. In hindsight, it does it does make for some inappropriate but oddly funny yes. uh, kind of B movie level dialogue. Like for example, where uh, the character that uh, the young scientist that makes like the solid on system, I forgot her name now. Mm. Um, uh, the Chinese character, um, where she oh says, my like, god, Ma- yeah, Mei Ling. <laughs> you know where Snake says, "I didn't expect that you would be so." cute <laughs> and i'm like uh <laughs> oh, <damn it> hater. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I mean, look, going back to Kojima, I, I see him as kind of a Quentin Tarantino where you kind of really have to just embrace his style. Yeah. He's, he's definitely in the Tarantino mode in that he has a lot of influences and he places those influences in his games. Mm-hmm. And whether that's an homage or outright lifting, it's all in the eye of the beholder. It depends on how you see it. Um, but I think, again, as I said, he's kind of developed his own voice over the years. But I am really glad that he is moving away from Metal Gear because it really does allow me to... It does allow him to just stretch out from his comfort zone oh, and, yeah. and do something yeah. beyond the typical action tropes that are influenced by movies like Escape from New York. Yeah, I don't even think it's a matter of, of him moving away from metal gear i think it's a matter of him not being able to do anything but metal gear because mm-hmm. i mean he did zone of the enders not not like a huge financial success or anything but like if you're kojima and you're going to konami and you're pitching a new original thing Konami's going to be like dude just make another metal gear yeah we need yeah. you know we have we have quarterlies to quarterly goals to meet yeah right? yeah, yeah and i and i think you know that was why we had so many times where kojima said this is going to be my last metal gear um, that was the case with Metal Gear Solid 3. It was the case with Metal Gear Solid 4. And he was like, yeah, yeah. I'm not doing Metal Gear anymore. So you kind of have to assume that that was a big reason why he had such a, a run-in with, with Konami because yeah. they kept saying, look, you have to keep doing Metal Gear. And he was like, well, I don't want to give it off to anyone because they're that's, just going to blow it. Yeah, that's um, the thing. Which I, think, they did. <laughs> I think Konami knew enough that if they called his bluff and they were like, we're just going to make one without you then. He would eventually yeah. be like, I need to get involved because he can't he can't stand the idea of like handing over his life's work to somebody else, which I, I understand. <laughs> well, we've seen. But I think also. <laughs> yeah. But I think also it kind of shows all the games kind of show his state of mind at the moment. Like Metal Gear Solid 3 was supposed to be his his final game. Mm-hmm. And. You know, he really thought that Snake's story was pretty much finished by then, yeah. you know, with the end of Metal Gear Solid 2. And that's why he just went back in time to the time of, of Big Boss. Yeah. And so that kind of reflects it because there's a sense of like, there's nothing more to go forward. He didn't really want to keep on going with Solid Snake's story. And then he was forced to do Metal Gear Solid 4, and he's like, okay, guys, you want me to do Metal Gear Solid 4? I'm just going to tie in everything. I'm just going to close all the loose ends. I'm just going to I'm gonna answer about Vamp and why he's immortal, and I'm going to bring back Raiden, and I'm going to make sure that all of you don't ask me any more questions about these games. <laughs> and, and it feels very much that way. You know, I mean, the fourth disc in, in, in Metal Gear Solid 4 is basically like, not the fourth is like the fourth uh, chapter. It's basically just like one big cutscene. Yeah. Um, and it's just meant to explain all the loose ends. So when Konami tells him, hey, you have to do another Metal Gear, Ko- Kojima was probably like, what the hell, guys? Like, I don't want to keep doing this, which is why I think Metal Gear Solid Five didn't feel like a Metal Gear Solid game, mm-hmm. you know, without getting into a digression. But it didn't. And, and that's why I kind of hated that game, because... It doesn't have any of the real hallmarks of the original Metal Gear. It, and, you know, even David Hayter is no longer there, which to me yeah. was a big reason why it didn't feel that way. Mm. Oh, it's um, criminal. So I feel like a lot of it just reflects his state of mind and his increasing intolerance for Konami's pressure to keep making Metal Gear Solid games. Yeah. And that's why, don't get me wrong, I I think, like, I'm not interested in Death Stranding outside of the fact that I don't know what it is. And so I want to I'm very know interested. <laughs> But yeah, me too. <laughs> but I just want to know what the hell is going on there. I'm so glad that he is 
sort of being allowed to do something outside of Metal Gear. I was really excited when he was doing PT and then Konami scrapped that whole thing. And then when he finally left, I was like, all right, let's, let's see. Because also the thing is when he's been doing the same thing for so long, you sort of have to start wondering, like, can he do anything else? You know, like well, you he, he is lauded as, as, you know, rightfully as, as a pillar of the video game community in terms of like what he's created, but I want to see him do something different. Well, you have to consider that every creator has a limited time span to make projects yeah. and he has to dedicate at least three years of his life to these projects. And Kojima is almost, you know, he's in his mid-50s, dude. Mm-hmm. You know, so he spent most of his adult life working on Metal Gear Solid games. So it's a state of liberation. And I think a big part of the of the marketing push that Kojima did with respect to himself was for his end goal, which was to work like in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So that's trending for him is kind of like a Hollywood production. Yeah. He's gotten a bunch yeah. of, you know, big name Hollywood actors. He's gotten Guillermo del Toro. He's gotten Norman Reedus. He really has achieved what he wanted, which is to have a big Hollywood presence. Yeah. Even down to Kiefer Sutherland voicing Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid Five. Mm-hmm. That that's really, I think, his end goal. And now he's liberated to do all that. Whether that's a good or bad thing, I guess we'll see. Yeah. But I I do think that he needed this in order to move forward as a creator. Yeah. He should. There's talk to, there's no uh, doubt about that. He should talk to Masahiro Sakurai about <laughs> like work life balance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Joey Shinkawa, though, I mean, I think that, you know, other than Kojima, I think he's playing, he's played a huge part in Metal Gear because he's really given it the look of Metal Gear. And, and Paul, you can talk about him a little bit more. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yoji Shinkawa, I think, is synonymous with the look, the feel. Um, so Yoji Shinkawa is the lead artist on the series. Uh, he started work with Konami as an art director for the console versions of Police Knots. Um, and then after that, his next project was character and mecha designs for Metal Gear Solid. Now, uh, since then, almost exclusively his work has been in Metal Gear Solid games. And you can tell he does, he's got that kind of felt pen watercolor kind of look to his art. Um, as Paul was saying earlier, the, the cover of the PAL version of Metal Gear Solid features his art. And, uh, and, it's funny, like, I didn't really realize, I just kind of assumed because he's an artist that he would have worked on other games, but off the top of my head, I couldn't remember his his distinct art style being in any other games. Yeah, Son of and the Enders, it's the only one that I can really... It's the only one, yeah. yeah and yeah. and that's because it wasn't. Yeah, it's and that game, that game has a, is synonymous. That game has a very distinctive look as well. I mean, I... Yes. I, I, I He's a very underrated mech designer. Um, all the, the looks of the Metal Gear uh, machines, whatever you want to call them, mechs, yeah. they're all very distinctive. And even yeah. the the, uh, the the Son of the Enders mechas, I mean, come on, they gave us like literal cockpits. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, literally, the cockpits were in the mechas groin region let's just say um so very distinctive look but i i love his inky kind of design it's a very kind of messy look but one that's extremely distinctive there's no one else that can pull off the the shinkawa look and and it's very um sorry to interrupt ozzy it's also very adult yeah that was that was the number one thing i noticed when i first saw metal gear and i saw the um like the instructions and the strategy guide, because the strategy guide, the Brady Games guide, it's the only guide I've ever bought. 
And it's just because of Shinkawa's art. Mm-hmm. It's just so it looked. It wasn't Mario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and also uh, he's working now on. A, he's he's now working on uh, Left Alive or something along those lines, which is a front mission spinoff. Ooh, and oh. that game looks very much like Metal Gear Solid because of its aesthetic design. So yeah. I wasn't interested in that game before, even though I like Front Mission. But it's nice to see that Shinkawa is getting work in other in other IPs. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's doing quite well for himself, but it is nice to see that. So, like Paul, back in back in the late '90s, there, like, how how did that art style affect how you perceived Metal Gear? Um, yeah, it was definitely a, a change from everything we had at the time, because literally nothing looked like that at all. But yeah, it's. Um, a lot of preconceptions come from looking at artwork from boxes before you actually get to play the game. And I believe yeah. it did a really good job of getting you in the mindset that this is a military espionage infiltration style game and everything is going to be very digital behind it. Yeah. But, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Very few, like, there's very few curves in his art. Yeah. And it's right? also one of, one of the things that is very distinctive about him is that he observes uh, character proportions in a very realistic, um, way. Um, they're not like super deformed or all, all the character proportions from their limbs and everything. It, it feels very realistic. Um, uh, maybe his legs are a little bit long, but it's, it, 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 <laughs> but it lends itself to this very cool look. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, moving on from Yoji Shinkawa, uh, just a couple other notes here. Uh, Kazuki Morooka. Uh, he was the composer, also the composer for the NES Metal Gear. Um, so we have we have this guy, you know, Kojima likes his crew, uh, clearly. Um, the only other thing I found that was notable was uh, Tappy, uh, Tappy Iwase. He composed the Metal Gear Solid theme that was featured on the demo disc. <laughs> um, and we all know which one it is. It was also used in MGS 1 and 3. Yep. Um, and 2. And then... Pardon? And two. Oh yeah, yeah, and two, of course, which is when I heard it first, and it was like incredible. Um interesting note, later abandoned after three because of its similarity to The Winter Road, uh, by Russian composer and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this, Georgi or Yorgi uh Sviridov. Um I actually listened to both of them. Yeah, it's it's very play it's very plagiary. Dude, very I had plagiary. to listen to it, and I was blown away by how similar it is. Because I've always loved that main theme, and I was wondering why it was abandoned. Mm-hmm. And I put this on before listening before starting the podcast, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> 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 it's another case of the Japanese borrowing, quote unquote." <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, it was very very liberal use. So. Yeah, you know, it's I I had always wondered as well why they abandoned that theme because I thought it was just incredible, and uh, yeah. No, but I yeah, I, like I, I think that as a whole, the soundtrack to Metal Gear Solid was excellent. I mean, it, it had a very suspenseful, um, kind of droning atmosphere where it just kind of played in the background as you stealth through, and I don't know, it 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 was kind of stealth music for me after that that was stealth music yeah um so it kind of defined that and the fact that it was dynamic that when you were caught by one of the soldiers or one of the cameras you had the alarm and then it had this dynamic fast-paced music dun 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 you know that 
that really lent lent it its own identity. And for me, like I said, it just that was stealth music for me. Yeah. I think that yep. the best thing you could say about Metal Gear Solid's music is that you could you could show somebody just that music, like just audio of that game, and they know exactly what game you're playing. Well, you could have oh, yeah. you could have someone like a shot of people walking down the street and you put the music on, you're going to start looking for Snake wherever he may be. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of Snake, uh, we'll just touch on Solid Snake really quickly here. Um, just in our overview of the game here, we don't have time to do all the characters. We don't have time to go over all of them, and that's fine. Um, the one that really matters is Solid Snake. So uh, just a quick, uh, quick rundown here. Solid Snake, genetically engineered soldier, doesn't like violence, but he's really he's really good at violence. <laughs> um, one thing that really stuck out right from the beginning, David Hayter. I have nothing but love for David Hayter. Oh yeah, like to me, he is Solid Snake. Like the first voice actor I really saw that just completely captured a character and sounded fantastic. I absolutely loved him. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of go ahead, Paul. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say that I completely agree with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's kind of interesting because David Hayter wasn't really a voice actor back in the day. He was actually a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote the original X-Men. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny how he became more identified with Solid Snake rather than any of his other accomplishments, really. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I think the same way that Kojima is is associated with Metal Gear as a series, David Hayter is associated with Solid Snake as a character. Um, get all your Solid Snake jokes out of the way now. <laughs> because I... So many throughout my life. So many. Well, my first yeah. experience with David Hayter was actually as an actor in the Giver Dark Hero movie. Wow. Oh. Yeah, no, no, no. I didn't see that. And the I, only- I'd seen the film not so long before the game came out. And then a couple of uh-huh. years later, when I realized it was the same guy, it was like, what? <laughs> was that a, was that Guyver movie live action or was it? An yeah, it was anime? a live action movie. See, we got Mark Hamill over here for our Guyver movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was two of them. Yep. Mark Hamill did the first one. And then That's the right. second one was David Hayter. It was more like a made-for-TV <laughs> kind of quality to it. Yeah, I've never seen the second one. I'm going to have to track that one down now. You know, but it's interesting about uh, about Solid Snake because Metal Gear Solid 1 is kind of the only title where you really play as a snake that we know and love. Mm-hmm. Because even in Metal Gear Solid 4, when he makes a comeback, he's this advanced, you know, prematurely aged uh, clone soldier. And so he has... Mustache and he's coughing up, you know, his lungs, and it doesn't feel like the Solid Snake that you played in um, on Metal Gear Solid One and Metal Gear Solid Two. You just play with him in the initial uh, forty-five minutes. Spoiler alert! Um, So it's kind of interesting that you never really saw Solid Snake kind of really make another Metal Gear Solid game again, um, at least in the vein of the first one. So I don't think that Kojima loved the original Snake that much because, you know, he thought that he was a character that couldn't really grow. So there really wasn't a lot of internal conflict. You know, he's just kind of a goody two-shoes. Yeah. You know, he, he I, wants to do the I good agree. thing. Yeah, um, I, I think the criticism of Snake has always kind of been that he's one-dimensional. Um, but but we all love him anyway, right? Yeah. And, and, and that he loves to answer everything with a question. Yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> 
So good. But I think, I think I think that goes back to David Hayter, honestly. Like I think he sort of made that character come alive for people. Um and obviously I mean the design is just freaking cool. Like when I when, you know, when I was eight, nine, ten, like I saw Solid Snake and I was like, holy crap, like that dude looks awesome. Well he has a bandana, that automatically makes him of course. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> At least to me. So like so Paul, let me ask you like why do you why do you think people love him so much? Cuz I mean clearly he's one of the most popular characters ever. I honestly can't answer that because I know how much I love him from that game. And mm-hmm. the beginning of the second game, fantastic playing the snake on the tanker. <laughs> and I yeah. felt sad playing Metal Gear 4 because he was aged, he wasn't quite up to his young self even mm-hmm. though he's not much older. And getting through Metal Gear 4 was... I enjoyed the game, but I felt sad playing it as old Snake. And I can't really put yeah. that into words why I feel that way. No, I, I I agree with you, Paul. And that's why the criticism on Metal Gear Solid 4 kind of ticks me off. Because for someone like you and like me, for which Metal Gear Solid is kind of the pinnacle of our experience with games, and Solid Snake has such an emblematic role in that experience... For me, Metal Gear Solid 4 was very emotional. I mean, even when you're going through, you know, the the, the nuclear uh, kind of radioactive yeah. zone at the end where you're just kind of crawling through it as, as you know, with the split screen and Raiden is battling it out and you're just crawling. To me, I, I'm getting chills right now because he was such <laughs> a masterful... Um, you know, structure, masterfully structured scene from Hideo Kojima. So just to have him kind of sent off you know, into retirement, that, you know, and his experience, like meeting his father, quote unquote, you know, as, as Big Boss. I mean, again, I'm putting a lot of spoilers in that game, but to me, it was just the perfect send off for Snake. Honestly, I, I, it really made me appreciate his character a lot more because there was a sense of, of melancholy to his character. As in, you could sense his true loneliness because amongst all the characters, um, he's the only one that really, at the end of it all, he has no one. You know, Meryl, you know, marries yeah. someone. Yeah. And Raiden goes, you know, with uh, Rose. And Sonny, I think, goes with Raiden, right? I think. He'll um, always have Otacon. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, Otacon is also kind of lonely. I mean, he yeah. kind of gets screwed over all the time. Snake uh, never yeah. had a cardboard box big enough for two. <laughs> but it, 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 it makes it feel like... Otacon's too much of a wet character to burn a cardboard box, man. <laughs> yeah, very much. <laughs> but I, I think that it just kind of carries through the theme that, you know, Solid Snake feels like an abomination. He's mm-hmm. like, you're this character that wasn't supposed to exist yeah. because you're you're a clone. And so you don't really, you know, deserve a spot in this world. And I think that's why there's such this this, this lingering sense of melancholy to Solid Snake's character, which is, I think, Paul, why you felt this profound sadness when playing Metal Gear Solid 4, because it's like, you know, you, you don't have a spot in this world anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The end yeah. of that game, when it all rounds out at the end, it was like, this is the end, and now I'm sad that I'm not going to continue. <laughs> yeah, which is why Metal Gear Solid 5 was such a kick in the nads. Um, I felt like that game was just kind of like a complete you know, 180 from everything Metal Gear Solid 4 did, which some people loved, I personally hated. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I think that, at least to me, everything that Ozzy said is true, but as somebody who's not really associated with 
with Metal Gear as on that deep a level. I think Snake is just a he's just such a cool looking character. He made cardboard boxes cool. Like he sure did. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how I felt about him when I was you know, 19. Yeah. Like I didn't really look at him very deeply. It was just like this guy's so cool. He's super competent and he's he's voiced like oh my god he sounds fantastic right? well, i think it, I, I think it was paul, very like very superficial my my love for yeah. him when i was younger well paul i mean you don't really get the twist until near the end where it turns out that he's a clone and yeah and there, there are three clones and there is solid there's liquid who is the main bad guy in in metal gear solid and then there's solidus who ends up being the president of the united states so you know his uh clone uh, narrative doesn't really come in until the end of Metal Gear Solid, where you start seeing all these themes of, you know, what is my role? Yeah. And did I just, you know, take the actions that I took because that was built in my genes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ozzy, speaking of themes, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to tackle some of those in this game. My hope is that the listeners will see this game in a way they haven't seen before after we talk about it. Okay, and we're back. And we're just going to talk about now some of the themes uh, that are present in Metal Gear Solid. I know for me personally, um, when I was doing research for this episode, I I had no idea that this game, that there was as much going on behind the game as there actually is. Um, when I first played the game, I enjoyed it. I don't even want to say superficially, but I kind of enjoyed it a little bit more superficially than than I realized. It was just like... The game's fun, the action's great, Solid Snake is awesome, the story, the voice acting, it all comes together, my favorite game ever, and then in researching this episode, I'm like, holy shit, there is so much more going on here than I realized. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's a very complex game in that sense. I mean, maybe Kojima doesn't achieve this, you know, an explanation of these themes or uh, a, a, an exposition of these themes as, as well as... as maybe you would have wanted but but they're all there and and this idea of dna your genes and what they say about you and who you are are very important to the experience yes absolutely um and you can and you can see what like where his opinion lies too kojima's opinion anyway Mm -hmm. in that like the 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 crux is will dna foretell what we're going to be Right? Or do we have the freedom to choose? And so you can see in the game that the characters, obviously the enemies, who kind of go with their predetermination and are unable to change their fate Mm. as soldiers, they all die. Um, But the characters who actually do fight their predetermined fate thrive. So Snake, in the end, chooses not to fight, um, you know, defying his genetics that he got from Big Boss. And then he gets Meryl and he walks off. And uh, Otakon, for example, you know, his his genes, so to speak, his family history is one of 
creating nuclear weapons, and he hates that. And so he fights against it. He's trying to destroy the nukes instead of creating. He also survives and thrives. Um, but all the enemies, they all have these backstories where they're just kind of trapped and they can't get out. Yeah, and, and, and I think with respect to that, there's a sense of, of resignation to all the characters. I mean, the death yes. of Sniper Wolf is very poignant because it's almost like she regrets the person that she is. And it's this idea of what is a soldier and, and does a soldier have free will? Um, you know, this is very much an anti-war, uh, game. It really does have an anti-war message. And I think Kojima is very clear that, you know, we should fight against our worst instincts and even against what we're predetermined to be. Yeah. And, and the reasoning, of course, is because, you know, history just repeats itself over and over. If we keep doing the same thing over and over, then especially nowadays, not to get too, you know, somber, but we've got nuclear weapons. Like it's not, it's no joke, right? Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, playing this game again uh, for this episode, you know, my, my experience going back to high, to college was on international relations and, you know, kind of geopolitical dynamics. And, and this game is really a product of the nineties in that it kind of looks at, okay, what comes now after the cold war? when there are all these stockpiles of nuclear weapons that we don't know what to do with. And there are so many nuclear weapons that can fall into the wrong hands and in the black market. And it, it kind of theorizes that, you know, this is a true danger and it takes kind of putting away that violent instinct and that self-destructive instinct that humanity kind of has built in into their DNA in order for us to survive this. Um, so it's, it's a game that, that really has that post cold war kind of sensibility. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And these are, I mean, again, this is a video game. Like, I think it speaks to the evolution of just narrative in games that this is something that was done, you know, something that was put together in a game. I don't think that up until this point, people expected um, this, these sorts of messages and these sorts of, you know, this sort of storytelling in their games. Yeah, no, I, absolutely not. And I think that, you know, it's, people weren't used to this because they weren't used to a game with this much dialogue. And the way that Kojima used his dialogue was for exposition. So you had the codec and that kind of gave him the, the, the scene in order to be able to develop all these themes in some way. I mean, they were much more heavy-handed in later games, like Metal Gear Solid 2, where he just outright hits you with a mallet in order to drive the themes home. But I think in Metal Gear Solid 1, those themes are a lot subtler. Like you said, Paul, you played this game without necessarily, you know, identifying or, or spotlighting those themes. And, you know, before this, you may have had a cutscene or the only real place where you could get dialogue like this was in RPGs mm-hmm. and they were just a lot of text yeah. and the storytelling was not as mature as you saw here. Yeah. So it, it really was a different sort of action game because none of the action games that preceded it really provided this amount of dialogue because it was kind of anathema 
to an action game because an action game needs to be fast paced and yeah. it needs to yep. have a lot of you know it, it cannot have stop and go action yeah. it, it, it's that's just doesn't lend itself to a good action game yeah. and kojima they fight that there was i think there was sort of a if not a hard line sort of an unspoken line where when you wanted to be story driven you had to sort of fall into this camp of these certain genres rpgs strategy rpgs that sort of stuff. And then when you want it to be gameplay focused, then you would fall into your running guns, your shmups, your, you know, action, first person shooters, stuff like that. And I think Kojima was obviously, I don't think the first, but one of the first to sort of merge the two and say, no, you can have sort of compressed stories in a more action oriented game. That's maybe, you know, a 10, 13 hour experience as opposed to a 50, 60 hour RPG. Yeah. For a lot it's of- almost better off for that, mm. really. For a lot of us, it's also it was also kind of her first exposure to a lot of the themes, like DNA or what was the genome project, or you know any of the various uh, you know themes that are prevalent in Metal Gear Solid. You know, for impressionable young minds, this was her first exposure, and maybe that led us to research more about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that at least was my experience. Yeah, it was it was for me too. There's there's no doubt about that. The hu- especially the human genome project, like it's kind of something that I would I would hear about kind of on the periphery, right? Um, but instead, now it's a central theme in this game. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the human genome project, other theme in this game, uh, misuse of technology, um, and it's it's kind of sad because like this game really hammers home the fact that. When we have new technology, almost always its primary and initial use is in military application. In like right now, we're starting to see situations with you know genetics where we're we're able to isolate genes to eliminate or reduce the potential of contracting certain diseases, um, and that'll be a boon for us going forward. But you know, in Metal Gear Solid, the very first use is creating super soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also it also kind of deals and touches upon the themes of the 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 complicity of governments with uh the arms trade and the complicity oh, yeah. of governments with the arms sector, the private sector, the milis- the military industrial complex, you know, the the relationship between Kenneth Baker, the head of ArmsTech, um, and the government and how they were just using arms tech in order to develop this technology. And it just kind of implements this mistrust of government. And for Kojima, he really drives home the point of, you know, soldiers are just tools and they're just being used by their governments and governments don't really have the interest of either their people or their soldiers in mind. And so that's why something like Outer Heaven kind of arises. Because this is the place where soldiers will be treated with respect, and I think that's been a prevalent theme throughout Kojima's uh, throughout Kojima's uh, work. Yeah. Yes, a hundred percent. And so, beyond that, beyond misuse of technology, um, subversion of expectations. I don't know about you guys. Metal Gear Solid was like you'd you'd play games up to this point right you'd play story games like rpgs and so on and so forth and they all have a twist you know they all have some kind of shocking scene or whatever um but metal gear solid was just like it was like a battering ram man it was just constant like 
you know, is this is happening or is it? Yeah. You know, oh, this is the situation or is it? Mm-hmm. And it kind of keeps you guessing. It keeps you interested. Um, just some examples here. So Colonel Campbell actually is my favorite. Colonel Campbell, he starts <laughs> off. He is your commanding officer. Snake trusts him. And then you start getting suspicious about him. And so it's like, well, what is he exactly? Yeah. Very similar with very similar with Master Miller. Um, Master Miller, a holdover from Metal Gear Solid uh, 2. Um, helpful at first. You know, hey, Master Miller's back, for those of you who know who he is. And then, bam, he's actually Liquid Snake. Yeah, and, and I think that, I mean, the only ones that don't betray him are Mei Ling and, and Meryl, well, and Otacon. But, yeah. you know, Naomi Hunter, Master Miller, Campbell, they're all using him. And you get yeah. the sense that you can't trust any of these guys, you know. And it's just so it's so different from how the game presents itself initially, right? Which yeah, because is like, you think it's you a know, straightforward it's, mission. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Rescue these two hostages and find out about their nuclear capabilities, yeah. and then it turns out that no, you're actually assisting the government with this nuclear program. Yeah. Yep. And um, there's sorry, go on. Well, there's something I think it's going to tie into something we're going to talk about in a second, but. Along with that subversion of expectation, I think what makes it so effective is that this game sort of goes beyond the screen in the sense that it it tries to involve you as a player. And so I think that helps with creating sort of an immersion to the point where you're where you're more invested in who can I trust, who is going to betray me. Like once you've been betrayed once, then you're on edge about it the entire time. You know what I mean? But there are things that um the game does that involve you physically as a player sort of assisting snake outside of just holding a controller and i think that helps sort of bring you closer to him as a character and then obviously creates higher stakes yes yes 100 percent. up to this point like paul have you had you ever seen a game up to this point that involved you know, checking the back of the CD case or, you know, unplugging the controller and plugging it into the other port. Definitely not. <laughs> also, definitely yeah. not seen anything like that before. And it actually kind of made for some interest in stories in the schoolyard for the kids that built the copied <laughs> versions without the cases. <laughs> oh, God. Back before, you know, all of this yep. would have been on the internet and easy to get all yeah. of. It was a case of, how do I ring metal? <laughs> yep. But see that and it's but that's but that's sort of the thing is that it sort of took the medium of games and was like, you know, what 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 is in a game? And most people think, well, you have the controller, you have the console, but you have the packaging, you have the manual, you have the disc, you have all these components that I think people always thought were superfluous, but with somebody like Kojima, he's like, how can I integrate these things to make it surprising or make something unexpected and sort of trick you into, you know, thinking that you've got it all figured out, but then something new comes along and sort of just turns your world upside down. There is yeah. a lot of fourth wall breaks to that game as well, because it's the whole thing of Psychomantis actually reading your memory card. Yeah. That, that was mind-blowing the first time I seen that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You like Castlevania, don't you? Uh, was, <laughs> well, you, know, you probably were pretty freaked out when you saw that at first. If you were just playing it for the first time without any knowledge, yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, you see that DNA 
in something like Eternal Dark, you know, when it's like deleting your save file or whatever, like that sort of interaction with the world outside the game is is intrinsically Metal Gear. Yes, it's it's certainly the first time I ever saw it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the Psychomantis fight in particular, like incredibly memorable. It's been 20, what, 20 years now? And that Psychomantis bottle, a bass, uh, my God, <laughs> maybe I can speak English instead. Um, that Psychomantis boss fight, like it's, it's what, top three? It's, oh, it's right ever? up, it's right up it there in terms of boss fights. I, I'm not I mean, too fond of the actual fighting part of it because it's just chasing him around the room and trying to find out where he is. <laughs> but the lead up to that part was fantastic. Yes. Yeah, I, I guess that would take it out of like the top spot because for me personally, and I don't know, Paul, I mean, you, you may have your opinions on this. I think the fight with the end in Metal Gear Solid 3 was... is the pinnacle of boss fights in Metal Gear Solid. Ah, um, uh, so, I haven't, see, I haven't played that one uh, yet, but we'll get there. Well, yes. It, the, the best thing I could say about it is that it could either take you five minutes or it could take you two hours. Yes. Um, it's all, <laughs> it's all about how you approach it. And, there's a possibility for not even having to yep. go through the fight. Not Another fight element of fourth wall breaking. And so this is something I wanted to ask uh, Paul, because you've played like so many of them in a row. So recently it seems like to me that that's always been sort of a hallmark of these games is like the boss fights are never explicitly straightforward. Obviously there's, you could always, for most of them, you can show up and kill the guy, but there seems to be a sort of al- alternate route. Um, for a lot of them, did that ever get like tiring? Like, were you always like, okay, what's the gimmick to this guy? Or was it always something where you're like wanting to figure out the non-traditional way of like beating the boss? I mean, the worst one for me would probably be Metal Gear 4 because some of the enemies in that were just a pain in the ass to try and figure out what you were actually (laughs) meant to be doing. Like there is one which is the Psycho Mantis version of that game. Mm-hmm. that's carrying around little toys and you have to shoot the dolls in its hand in a specific order in order to do something I can't quite remember now. And I yeah. remember at the time just being like, why am I doing this? <laughs> so there's like yeah, a but- sweet spot. Like if you go too obtuse, you're like, uh, there's no point in this. It just becomes annoying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the boss fights in Metal Gear Solid 4 weren't great. Uh, neither were the ones in Metal Gear Solid 2, to be perfectly honest. I hated, Agreed. I hated the, the fight with Fat Man. Yeah. And the fight with Vamp also wasn't good. Um, so those two games did not have the best, um, the best boss fights and particularly 4 because it felt like a retread of the bosses from Metal Gear Solid 1. Well, so, 2 felt especially like a retread because technically in the story, most of it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a recreation of the Shadow Moses incident being played through by Raiden, basically. Yeah. Which was also and, another like, good the boss for, fights for were just fight, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. I agree, man. Um so it's funny, Arnie, that you mention the um the C D case and that kind of stuff, the fourth wall stuff, bringing the player in. The irony in and I, as I was doing my reading here, the irony is that and you know it without kojima actually saying it out loud this is all speculation but it's actually meant to separate the player and solid snake the character because up until up until this point in a video game you have a controller you're controlling a character and then the character does what you tell him to do Mm -hmm. and then there are results yeah but 
through Metal Gear Solid, you you slowly kind of have a separation between you and Solid Snake. Mm-hmm. So you have situations that are presented that Snake cannot solve. It is you, right? Yeah. Solid Snake cannot get the codec from the back of the CD case. Only you can. Mm-hmm. Solid Snake cannot change the controller port in the Psycho Mantis fight. Um, later on in the game, Snake will not fire the rocket at Metal Gear Rex with Liquid sitting in the cockpit, even if you push the button. Hmm. Snake refuses to do it. And you'll and I never actually noticed this again until until doing the research. You never actually kill any bosses in this game. So you fight Ocelot. Ocelot doesn't die. Gray Fox doesn't die. Sniper Wolf dies, but it's in a cutscene. So you don't get any kind of quote-unquote satisfaction from pressing a button and killing Sniper Wolf. Um, Vulcan Raven is eaten by ravens, haha. <laughs> and then and then Liquid Snake, he dies because of the fox die virus. Um, even Psycho Mantis is unbeatable until you as the player do something to beat him. It's not actually Solid Snake. And... So at the end, this kind of culminates with Liquid Snake's speech where he looks at the player directly through the first-person view and tells them, you enjoy all the killing. Like, that's the secret. And so for Solid Snake, the only way for him to actually live in peace is to not be controlled by the player who is implicitly told, actually, no, you're playing this game because you like all the killing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, um, and it's almost like, as, as you say, a subversion of expectation because, you know, around that time, games, what they did was they let you kill people, you know, and that's yeah. what you did all the time. And so that's kind of Kojima's commentary on games as a whole. It's like, this is what you enjoy doing. And and this, if you took it to its logical conclusion, this would be the result, you know, of like, you know, death and destruction. And that's what we have to ac- actively move away from. Yes, yes. Um, and it's even, it's amazing, man. Like, even the game's structure kind of tries to separate the player and Snake. Like, you can tell, again, during the Psycho Mantis fight. So, during the Psycho Mantis fight, he reads the memory card, right? And up to this point in the game, the game has been very, I wouldn't say calm. You have your boss fights, and they're intense. But there's been a lot of stealth, a lot of sneaking. Solid Snake is, unbeknownst to him, aiding uh, Foxhound or the, you know, the the bad Foxhound. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once Psycho Mantis kind of becomes aware of you as the player, the, even the entire tone of the game changes. The game becomes much more action-packed. There are tough set pieces and they come one after the other. The sneaking takes a back seat. It's 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 quite amazing actually like now that i'm looking at it kind of overall like more holistically the game like just the fact that the game's pacing changes in response to the game becoming aware of the player itself it's incredible yeah and i think i i get what they're doing you know like it creates like you said it's sort of meant to take you out of the immersion if anything like make you aware that like you are a player this is a game this is a character that you control but at least to me it seems like it it seems like it would make you feel like you're more a part of the game right like you're more involved than simply just pushing these buttons like you have to help 
Solid Snake solve these problems with like yeah. physically having to do them for him. Um, so I think it's effective on both fronts. I think it it sort of delineates the game sort of real world narrative. To, so like the story is effective in that way where you're like, yeah, like you're the one doing all the killing. You're the one executing all these all these things. But it also manages to make you attached to this character that you've sort of throughout the course of the story helped get to this point a lot more than I feel like I've helped a lot of RPG characters that I've spent like 70 hours with. Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Which by the way, I mean, this is, this was a theme that, you know, it's impressive to see it being portrayed in 1998, mm-hmm. but it's a theme that eventually you started seeing with other games like Bioshock, where it was like, oh, yeah. you know, do you really have a predetermined fate and what is your role as the player, you know, and, and that whole discussion about ludonarrative dissonance about, you know, whether you can have a character that is affable and, and, you know, quirky, but, you know, during gameplay kills hundreds, thousands of other characters, mm-hmm. you know, that, yes. that is a discussion that was being had by Metal Gear Solid in 1998. Yeah. So, and it did it very well. Yeah. It's, um, it's, I, like it's groundbreaking, right? There's there's just no other way to put it. I don't I don't think I ever heard of another game doing anything like this before Metal Gear Solid. No, I mean if it wasn't the first, it was the one that was most well known for doing it. Um, and I think you know credit to the people who worked on it, credit to Kojima. Honestly, a little bit of credit to Konami because I can't imagine that they were pitched these ideas and they were immediately like, oh yeah, absolutely, we're totally on board for this. This seems oh like something that had to be negotiated to a certain extent, but... Oh, they probably weren't even aware of it. I think probably Kojima just showed them kind of like the action set pieces. And they said, okay, this looks good. Go ahead with it. But I doubt that they were keyed in on, you know, the themes that this game was really trying to hammer No, not the themes, but like the putting the codec on the actual game case, the making it so like... Because essentially what that does is like, if I don't have the case for any reason, I can't beat this game. Or like the Psycho Mantis thing where you have to unplug your controller and stuff like that. Like, I feel like game companies, especially bigger game companies, are uh, are sometimes averse to that sort of narrative because I think they think it'll frustrate players and make... You know, people not want to get involved with something like that. <laughs> yes, we're we're very precious. I, I mean, <laughs> with the I game know. controller actually changing it from port to port. The last time I played Metal Gear Solid, I played it on the PS3, mm-hmm. which is obviously a wireless controller. Yeah, and they've yeah somebody's thought of it at some point that there is a possibility to change that controller from player ones to player two without actually adding another controller to the system. Interesting. Yeah, huh. I, I do. I think you just have to go into the menu oh. uh, system on the PS3, and you can actually change the port. I huh. believe through I did that, not know that mechanism. But if you couldn't do that, that game would have stopped. Yeah. Then, then you'd be, <laughs> yeah. then you'd be done. <laughs> well, we'll take another quick break, guys. I think we've I think we've gone over some of that stuff pretty thoroughly, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk about Metal Gear Solid's legacy overall.
Okay, and we're back. Uh, final segment of the show. Um, Paul, let me ask you, how do you think Metal Gear Solid affected video games? Oh, that's a big question. Very <laughs> easy question. question. <laughs> I think it's definitely had a positive impact on the industry as a whole, especially for people like me, because I love movies, and when games get cinematic, I absolutely adore it. So the fact that so many games followed a similar structure, if not with as much detail, it was just a fantastic thing for the industry and just to get away from platforming and the generic norm of the 90s. So I think it's a fantastic yep. legacy to leave. Yeah. Ozzy? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think that we've all hammered through that. This this, this is a very influential game. It, it established the stealth genre, you know, in a mainstream setting. You know, you could talk about Thief, for example, as being, you know, very definitive in terms of establishing the rules of, of stealth, but it was only Metal Gear Solid that really, you know, made it popular and, and made a lot of developers take notice. And, and to this day, you know, a lot of the stealth sections, they're still derivative of Metal Gear Solid. The idea of, you know, having kind of a puzzle-like environment where you have to get through um, an environment without being spotted and having certain routes and finding the optimal route to get through that environment. That's something that Metal Gear Solid kind of established into the DNA of stealth. So, you know, but beyond that, you know, we haven't even talked about it, but voice acting, you know, Metal oh. Gear Solid was the game that made it, you know, good in, in a way and that you needed to really put some thought into who your voice actors would be. Mm-hmm. Because before yeah. this, it, whatever, it was whatever person you could find you know that would be able to throw out a few lines here and there but because of kojima's you know very hands-on touch he really identified who needed to be his voice actors and so every character really shined through because of those performances so i think this really marks you know the demarcation point between you know bad voice acting and let's just not say let's say good but better voice acting in video games yeah yeah it's I mean, even going back and playing Metal Gear Solid, the voice acting is not, you know, it's not fantastic by any stretch, but in in the context of its time, it was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you just have to consider some of the games that were being put out there, you know, I mean, because in the 32-bit era, it was suddenly necessary to put dialogue and boy, I mean, you only have to look at Symphony of the Night <laughs> in order to see how that could go wrong. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm just that, a that miserable a... little pile of secrets <laughs> i know <I'm... laughs> without konami i was waiting this game for out, you to throw that out i think that <laughs> companies like uh, naughty dog would not be where they are today yeah because they i think so oh, very yeah. cinematic and very you know narrative driven games with a lot of voice acting in and yep. before that crash bandicoot mm, is a bit of a jump <laughs> Yeah. 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 And I think it it, it was an, an influential game in the sense that it made a lot of people go into development and it made them go into the industry because they realized what could be achieved through the medium. The idea of being able to break the fourth wall and manipulate the player's expectations and be able to tell a narrative story through an interactive setting. I think was really appealing to a lot of people that eventually became developers. So I, I hear this game frequently cited as one of the most influential games of all time for developers. You know, something like The Last of Us, I think, 
is very, very, you know, influenced by Metal Gear Solid. Um, from the voice acting to the character arcs to the gameplay, you know, its DNA has just kind of spread through a lot of different games that you would not necessarily identify as being influenced by Metal Gear. Yeah. Yes, 100%. The Last of Us, I think, is an excellent example. Like, it's just kind of, it's just kind of top to bottom, really, like an expansion and, you know, perhaps perfection of that ideal. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? What do you what do you think about the legacy? I mean, there's not, you know what, there's not a heck of a lot I can add, really, uh, to what you guys have already mentioned. Like, um, the legacy for Hideo Kojima, uh, for one, is... Like, this is the game that put not only him, but the video game auteur on the map, mm-hmm. right? Because prior to this, you know, you had you had your um, your Sakaguchis and your Miyamotos and, and you know, that's, that's all well and good. But Hideo's name especially is all over this game. During the Psycho Mantis fight, when, you know, he fakes you out with the change to video, except it's Hideo or Hideo, whatever. <laughs> you know, like... Little touches, his name is all over it. And I think at that point, we start seeing an industry that evolves more to appreciating the the lead designers. Yeah, and it's something that we still haven't seen fully blossom. It's definitely become more prevalent. You know, like we said with Suda51, Shinji Mikami, Keiji Inafune, Hideki Kamiya, all these developers that have a very large life presence. I don't think we've really gotten to the point where developers get their due. But it did set the way for these characters that eventually, you know, started making their presence felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing it did well uh, in setting in setting the table was making it okay financially for developers to target games at adults. And I'm not saying that it's the pioneer. Yeah. I mean, we had Resident Evil before that, right? But Metal Gear Solid is very much not a game for children, mm. and it almost revels in that, really. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, it did feel like, just by virtue of the themes that we have just discussed, I mean, it really is a testament to how Metal Gear approached its narrative, that it really was aimed, you know, if you wanted to play it through as just a straight action game, you potentially could. But yeah. if you really wanted to explore more than that, it really had enough meat in those bones in order to be able to expand upon it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I don't know. Do we have anything else to add here? Um, I mean... Go play it. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't, honestly. I want to give my quick thoughts real quick. Um, oh, sorry, Arnie. No, no that's fine. Um, <laughs> We're out of time. I know. It, it is hashtag quick. Hashtag forgotten. It is actually quick. Uh, hashtag never forget. <laughs> um, it, what, all I was going to say is, I mean, I agree with everything you guys have said. If you want to know about the legacy of Metal Gear Solid, I think all you got to do is listen to the two and hours and 15 minutes before this part of the episode. <laughs> but it, the, the two things is, I mean, I think it, it did make everybody stand up and take notice that games can be more than just, you know, a, a distraction and sort of a hobby. They are in a medium unto itself and, a medium that's distinct from movies and from, you know, literature and from art and, and, you know, all these things. Um, but the other thing is, I think that looking back on Metal Gear is, is hard in the sense that now that it's such a successful franchise, it's easy to say like, man, all these things are so cool and blah, blah, blah. But 
when you look back on when this game was coming out, I feel like they took a lot of risks in this game that could have easily not panned out the way that they hoped it would. So I think the fact that all those things sort of came together to create this whole is remarkable in and of itself. Yeah, this could have been a horrible game in less capable hands. Absolutely. Oh, yes. And it did. It became one. It was called Siphon Filter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it, Paul. (laughs) And on that note... (laughs) Yes, on that note, I I think we'll wrap things up here. Um, So, yeah, you know, to our listeners, thanks so much again. Uh, This was a bit of a long one. I hope you enjoyed it. And... uh, Thanks to Paul for joining us for this one. Thanks, man. It was awesome having you. It was a pleasure to be here, man. And uh, so, again, you can find Paul on Instagram uh, where he posts irreverent opinions about games. Uh, He's PlaySatan13. Ozzy, where can we find you? Uh, Shadow the Collector on Instagram uh, with underscores. Uh, Actually, no, not underscores. What the hell am I talking about? With periods in between those (laughs) words. Well, well done. Very smooth. Um, <laughs> Arnie, how about you? Uh, you can find me at, at Region Free Gamers. That's our uh, main Instagram page. We're also on Twitter at Region Free Gamer and on YouTube at Region Free Gamers. Um, I also have a personal page. Welcome to the game. It's welcome number to the game, but it's pretty barren. So I would suggest reaching out on at Region Free Gamers. If you guys have any questions, comments, uh, love to chat. Just, you know, hit me up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can find me Instagram, Paul's underscore game room. Don't forget, rate and review. And, uh, thanks very much for listening, guys. This is awesome. See you guys. Peace.